Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am on the Arkenstone server here tonight in Lotro, and we are be about to begin session 82 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings as we continue to work our way slowly into the Trollshaws on the other side of the river, having crossed the last bridge. Uh, and uh, we had... We had just gotten to Frodo's dream, uh, or the sort of dreaming experience that he has. It's not quite as detailed, of course, as his previous dreams. And then uh, prudently stopped last time. So we're going to pick up there. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to pick up there uh, in a little bit. Though I have to warn you that you know everybody <laughs> every week I get uh, uh, numerous questions uh or comments on the uh um on the primary uh on the discussion board which is continuing to try to draw me back to discuss the attack on weathertop more so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work it through we're, we're, we're i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do what we can here um i am gonna address several of those uh we also had a a, a number of uh comments and discussions on the uh, crossing of the road and how the Nazgul saw them uh, as well, so we will um, uh, we'll see. Well, well I, we're gonna I, we're gonna do some of that. I'm still gonna try to move forward here, of course, in chapter twelve, uh, but we'll see what we can do. Uh, first, quick uh, announcement: the primary thing, of course, that I want to emphasize is Magnolia Moot, which is coming up in a matter of days. This coming Saturday, November tenth. In a mere four days, uh, we are going to uh, uh, be in, I'm going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if you're anywhere in the Charlotte area, please come join us. You can still register. Just had a few more registrations today, which is great. Um, so uh, I hope that um, I hope that uh, uh, there's some of you who, who can still come. I know that some of you who are here tonight are coming, which is pretty cool. Uh, I'm excited to uh, meet you guys there. It's going to be uh, it's going to be an awesome group, actually. Uh, I'm really excited. I was looking over the registration list, and I'm like, oh man, there are some awesome people coming to Magnolia Mood. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So anyway. Really, really uh, excited uh, to be there. Please do come join us if you possibly can get to Charlotte uh, on Saturday. You can find the details and the registration information at signumuniversity.org. Uh, just scroll down a little bit and you'll see the Magnolia Moot uh, event panel there for you to join. So um, anyway, that's awesome. So um, yeah, Tony, I saw that you were coming. I was pretty surprised because I'm like, Tony does not live in North Carolina. Uh, it's funny. Actually, there are several people who are like, I caught traveling and are going to be coming even though that's not where they live. So that's, uh, uh, that's actually kind of fun there. So yeah, Tony, I have to admit, I saw your registration come in uh, this past week and I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway, that's, that's going to be cool. Uh, so anyhow, Looking forward to a great time at Magnolia Moot on Saturday, so I do hope that you can come and join us. All right, well, let us get to our uh, <laughs> to our moving backwards stuff, uh, our, our looking back at a few other things. I'm going to try, uh, as I always do, uh, to be efficient with this, so we'll see how we do. Dreams and Determination. 
are the is the uh, uh, the theme for tonight. Of course, Frodo's dream uh, and my determination. Excuse me, I mean the Hobbit's determination. I was reflecting. Of course, you remember when they meet Strider uh, in the end, and we talked about that for several months. And um, you know, when Strider talks about how uh, you know they need to be, they will need to be made of much sterner stuff, you know, than they look to be, right? And of course, that's put to the test right away here. Uh, and it's really fun to see what a growing experience this leg of the journey is for all of them, right? In the first half of the journey, their uh, their respect for Strider increased, right? Their respect for and trust in Strider increased as he guided them. Remember, you know, he's Mr. My cuts short or long do not go wrong, right? He, he leads them exactly where he wants them to be in the wilderness uh, and not into quagmires and difficulties and delays uh, like they have experienced on their previous shortcuts. Um, in the second half of their journey to Rivendell, it's really, I think, Strider whose respect um, for the uh, for the hobbits really increases, right? He was obviously doubtful. And as we saw when we looked at the Bree experience, with good reason, right, dubious about their whole affect, right? Like their whole plan, their whole capability, like what was up with them? Um, they seem clueless and hopeless and soft and uh, lots of dangerous things, right? But here we're finding them uh, uh, here we're, we're finding them to be pretty tough, right? Um, and the trek that they make here uh, is pretty demanding as uh, as the text really emphasizes. And of course, especially, obviously, Frodo, first and foremost, who is persevering through tremendous difficulty, right? Uh, through his wound and the splinter of the blade, which is still in his wound. Um, so, cool. Anyway, all right. So, um, that's where we are. That's where we're going to get to. But first... Uh, uh, a trip backwards a bit. Um, I want to want to talk about this long. I we've probably covered this already, but just in case, I want to say it again because I was reading this and I was like, mm, I'm not sure I really uh, said all the things I wanted to say about this. So let's just let me go over this very briefly, but I won't spend long on this. Um, uh, Galleon says in the Silmarillion, we're told that when Manway there ascends, which is to the Mount. Uh, to Nikwatil. When Manwe there ascends his throne and looks forth, if Varda is beside him, he sees further than all other eyes, through mist, through darkness, and over the leagues of the sea. And if Manwe is with her, Varda hears more clearly than all other ears the sound of voices that cry from east to west, from the hills and the valleys, and from the dark places that Melkor has made upon earth. I think it's possible, if not probable, that Elbereth did hear Frodo calling out her name. I agree. Very... It, at the very least possible, I would also go so far as probable. Given that she did hear him, would she intervene on his behalf? Would that intervention be the same kind of inf- intervention as Providence could be said to be? I'm a bit unclear on how much of Providence comes in some way uh, that I'm also un- uh, also unclear on, on from the Valar and how much comes directly from Iluvatar. If indeed interpreted as a direct intervention by Elbereth, as a response to Frodo's call right there and then, is this the most direct intervention of the Valar in The Lord of the Rings? This is an interesting topic in the light of the criticism of the Valar, the criticism the Valar often receive for having withdrawn from the world and doing too little to help Middle-earth in the Third Age. Is Varda's intervening to help Frodo against the policies of the Valar? Or does the quote above suggest that Manwe is sitting beside her and totally on board with this direct, forceful intervention against Sauron in Middle-earth? Okay, 
Um, lots of, um, lots of fun stuff here to talk about. Um, and I, this, first of all, the primary thing I want to say about all of this is that it's not really clear. And when I say it's not clear, I mean, you can construct perfectly consistent readings in multiple ways. There are some, there are some elements, I think, of the Lord of the Rings, which really, you can kind of choose the story that you want, in a sense, if you see what I mean by that. That is, neither one is contradicted by the text, I think. Um, if you want to do a reading of the Lord of the Rings in which the Valar are completely shut away, right, and the Valar don't intervene at all, you can make that work. Almost always. I, there's going to be very little that will contradict that reading. Um, you can do that. It'll work. If you want to make a reading where the Valar are paying attention and are intervening a good deal more, you can do that too. That will also work. And very little will actually contradict that either. Right? Um, so that's what I say when I'm... That's what I mean when I say you really kind of... You really kind of can... Um, kind of choose your own story. Like, which version do you like better? Because either one of them will work, I think. And I don't see too much to choose between them. Myself, I personally tend to favor the the Valar paying attention and intervening uh, uh, side of things. Um, and I do this for a couple of reasons. So, firstly, uh, let me kind of break this down into a couple different elements here. Um, the first, the question uh, in sort of that central paragraph, right? Um, the, the the story in that central paragraph about providence versus the activity of the Valar, right? So, okay. Oh, and sorry, Dave Lowe there on Twitter. Uh, all the videos, all the recordings of the class uh, are are posted on YouTube. So if you go to the Signum University YouTube channel, you can find all the things, right? All the other 81 recordings of this class and uh, and the full recording of this one as well. Anyway, okay, so um, Providence versus the Valar. I think that the distinction here is relatively... Um, is relatively... It's not as hard and fast as a lot of people want to say. I, I think a lot of people want to say, like, okay, who did this, right? Is it the Valar acting here, or is this Iluvatar acting? And I tend to think that a lot of the time, that's not a meaningful question. Um... The Valar are the delegated powers, right? They are the delegated powers. They are the ones whom Luvatar has appointed. And his they are part of his providence. Like, they, they are, in a sense, subject to the providence of Luvatar. They are also, in a large sense, the instrument of his providence, right? Now, you can say that's true of everybody, right? You and me are also instruments of Luvatar's providence as well as subject to his providence. So to say that is not necessarily to say that they're in a unique position, but they are like put in charge, right? And when I read the Ainulindale, what I see is a god who does a good deal of delegation, right? He leaves uh, a, a good deal of scope, to the agency of the Valar themselves. Now, what he tells Melkor, right, after Melkor's rebellion, is you can't hijack the music. It's not possible, right? Uh, things are going to come out like I want them to come out. The glorious story that I have in mind to tell is going to be told. But that doesn't change the fact that the Valar have real power to 
do stuff. They have real agency to do things. Um, but they're doing God's will as well. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, um, again, to say, did the Valar do it or did Iluvatar do it? Again, I, mostly I don't find that a really meaningful question. If you if you think about it, if you think about it, there's only... Tell me if you guys can think of any other examples that I'm not thinking of. But I can only think of one occasion in the entire history of Middle-earth where there's a clear distinction made, where like Iluvatar acts... Okay, oh, okay. I guess if you count the birth of the elves and men, that would be three. Three. Three times uh, when the Valar specifically don't have any hand in it and Iluvatar does something totally independently without any Valar doing anything. Right? The birth of the the, the firstborn and secondborn would have to be. Um, and the third, of course, the, the primary one I was thinking of was the fall of Numenor and the reshaping of the world. Marianne, exactly. Right? We are told that, like, you know, Manway and the other Valar step back and they say, Aluatard, you like you we just whatever you want to have happen, happen, right? And then whammo, we get the 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 bending of the world and the sinking of Numenor, right? That's a that's a really big deal. Um and and again the the the, the birth of the elves and the men is the other thing I'd have to add, because we know that the Valar didn't do that. Other examples, there's that, and that's not to say that there aren't any, but what I'm saying is the text is not ever, re- apart from that, like the Numenor is a huge exception, right? It's a really, really big deal. Um, uh, we don't, we get very few places where the text emphasizes like this is a Luvatar acting independent of the Valar. Um, so... Yeah, but see, but you know, uh, Matt and uh, somebody else was already was also mentioning the adoption of the dwarves. Yeah, but see again, there the, to me that actually seems almost like an illustration of the way that things normally work, right? That is to say, of course, Aule very involved, right, in the shaping of the dwarves and the making of the dwarves. Now. Iluvatar breathes independent life into them, which Aule didn't have to give. But remember how Iluvatar immediately follows that up with saying, how you made them, I have left them, right? So in other words, like what he did was just kind of give a special dispensation to the work that Aule did. In fact, yes, like he acted independently, but in his independent act, what he did was make what Aule wanted to happen, happen, right? Aule was trying to make independent children. He couldn't make independent children. Uh, Iluvatar made it possible, right? So in my mind, actually there, the idea of Iluvatar sort of empowering that act, that creative act, right? That sub-creative act, well, it was really kind of a creative act, uh, transgressing the boundary between sub-creation and creation in some, to some extent, right? What, what Aule was trying to do. But anyway, that sub-creative act by Aule is then empowered by Iluvatar and becomes a thing, right? But that seems to me to be kind of how a lot of stuff works, right? So anyway, uh, this is just as much as to say I don't, you know, how Iluvatar tends to act in the world most often is through the Valar who are his regents, right? That's what happens. Um, And so 
I, so again, I don't think that there's uh, too much in the way of hard and fast distinctions between is it because of Providence or did the Valar do it? That's one of the reasons why I am inclined towards more Valar intervention rather than not. Here's the second thing to think about. The second thing to think about, one of the things that's hardest in answering the question, are the Valar intervening in the Third Age, is that the whole point of view of the story is so very different than it is in the Silmarillion, right? Consider this for a second. When we're told in the first part of the Silmarillion, when we're told about the labors that the uh, the Valar are taking in the world, right? Um, you know, like the erection of the pillars and, you know, like the, 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 the lamps and the delving of seas and the, you know, the, the, the blessing of plants and animals and raising of mountain ranges and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, they're doing all these big sort of macroscopic things around the world, right? Sure, we're told about that, but think of the point of view that we're told about that from, right? It's very much a sort of mythological, sort of big, big picture outside, and this, you know, and now Aule shaped the mountains. What would that have looked like? Like, if you'd lived there, you know, if you'd been standing there, what would you have seen? Would you have seen a dude, like, with a big hammer, you know, like, stacking rocks to make a mountain? Is that what it would have looked like? I'm not convinced that that's what it would have looked like, right? Again, we have no idea what it would have looked like because we're, you know, we're not told about it from that point of view, right? We're not told about it from the, yes, Erokeb says it, we would not have seen a dude because there were no children yet. Yeah, so he wouldn't have taken the form that looked like uh, one of the children of Iluvatar, right? True enough. But anyways, again, like what, what would somebody on the ground be experiencing. In other words, again, to say the same question a different way, during the time when we know the Valar were, in fact, very actively intervening in the world, what would that have looked like? If there had been, you know, humans and elves and hobbits living in the world, and we were hearing about their story and their daily experience of the world around them, like we're getting during the Lord of the Rings, what would they have perceived? What would they have seen? Would they have been aware, and to what extent would they have been aware of the actions of the Valar, right? Um, even if it had happened, um, even if it had happened, like, again, right next to them, you know, even if they're watching this happen, I tend not to think that it would have looked exactly, I, I think that the description that we get is, it's trying to convey a mythic fact, Right? Aule built the mountains. Okay, great, fine. He built the mountains, right? But again, that doesn't mean that that's exactly what it would have looked like. A guy building mountains, right? Uh, if we were, if we were there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, exactly, Tony. Uh, the Silmarillion, that part of the Silmarillion, especially, we're getting what the elves were told by the Valar in a way that they could comprehend, right? Or even, Tony, even to take it one step further out, right? What the elves have written down and, and, and passed out, what, what Bilbo got, right, from the elves in a way that he could understand what they got from the Valar, right? So it's, it's, um, it's, the whole narrative is on such a different level that we don't, really know. But again, I am inclined to say, if I had to guess what it would have looked like, um, 
you know, for a hobbit or a, a, a man or somebody who was there, I don't think they would have seen, you know, huge, gigantic figures bestriding the landscape and constructing things with their hands, right? I think that what they would have seen was something like natural forces at work, right? Would have been something which they would have understood in you know, totally material terms. In which case, if that is the case, then many of the things that we see happening, which seem like natural events, right? What is to say that the Valar are not involved in those things, right? Um, so, yeah, Tony, I, I agree. There's there's uh, uh, many levels of metaphor that are uh, going on in those in those early accounts. All this is to say, again, we don't know, right? But this is why, to me, the idea uh, the idea that the Valar are completely shut away and not perceiving and not intervening at all, uh, I, I don't think that that's necessary, right? Tony says, would it, you know, might the intervention of the Valar look like uh, the wind changing? Uh, yeah, yeah. And certainly, Tony, that's always been my favorite example. Right. If I had to point to an example of a place where I feel pretty convinced, um, again, it's not inescapable. If you want to do the reading where the Valar aren't involved, you can still do it. It doesn't have to be the Valar. But I, uh, I definitely think that the uh, the changing of the wind uh, at the Battle of Pelennor Field is the intervention of the Valar. That's certainly how I choose to read that uh, uh, that passage. And Tony, I think to me that's always been my kind of uh, you know model, essentially, right? Yeah, Marianne adds, or clouds moving aside so that a, a star is visible. Uh, yes, exactly in Mordor, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, and uh, Mad Violinist, I agree. The arrival of the Astari does show that the Valar are still involved with the fates of Middle-earth. Now, again, you know, Mad Violinist, you can say, right, um, oh, you know, well, sure, that like that was like their token gesture. So they're not paying attention. In fact, it proves they're not paying attention, right? Because they were just like, oh, you know, wizards go take care of, you know, we're sending our token representatives, right? Now we can, like, totally not pay attention because, you know, nobody can say we didn't care because we sent the Astari, right? You can do that reading. Um, that reading seems a little silly to me, but um, but anyway, I definitely uh, uh, I definitely think that um, it does. It, it to, again to me, it fits better with an argument that says, yeah, they're they're um, they're paying attention, right? You can tell that they're paying attention, and this is their that's their most direct intervention in a sense, right? But. Um, but yeah, I do think Tillian, my, again, my reading is also that the acts of the Valar are often subtle or appear subtle, right? Um, and people don't really notice uh, what's going on. So anyway, um, Gandalf's return after death, mad violinist. Well, we'll get to that. There's the, we, we have some data on that one, which we'll get to before too long, <laughs> right? Um and JJ says that's how Providence works. Yeah, uh-huh. Again, back to the, like, is it Providence or is it the Valar? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Again, not sure it's a, it's a, uh, in the end, a, a significant question, like a, a meaningful question, really. Um, so, you know, I think it would be interesting if Elbereth intervenes 
you know, when the, you know, the blessing of Gildor is invoked and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Frodo drops the E-bomb, this would be a very different kind of intervention, right? Um, but I don't think that that makes it necessarily unique. I don't know if I'd call it most direct, but, um, but it's definitely, it's definitely uh, different, I think, of a, of a, of a, of a somewhat different kind. Um, but again, I, I think not unique where I think we're going to see this happen again, uh, in a very similar way, actually. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony says they have to, they've come to understand the dangers in appearing in their own forms and how that can lead, lead to temptation and fall looking at Melkor and Sauron. Yes. Not to mention, you know, war, which causes continental destruction and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Inglor says, could the name Elbereth have power in and of itself? <sighs> yes and no. Yes, the name is significant. Um, I mean, you don't just say the name and nothing happens, right? But it's not a spell either. You know, it's not like... Um, you know, power word Elbereth or something like that, right? Where you just like utter the word and a magical of, you know, there's like a, like that's a, a really direct kind of cause and effect in that way. That's, um, um, I think not, uh, not really how it works, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, We'll have some other examples to look at from this. But this is definitely, you know, one of those things. There's a whole bunch of things I keep adding to this list, right? Somebody keeping this list somewhere? We totally need to keep this list somewhere, right? Whenever I say, like, we need to keep track of this and keep an eye on this as we go through the text. We need a list. We need we need to be systematic about this, people, right? Let's make some observations so that we can draw some conclusions later on. This is one of the things that I want to track. Places that where we believe or at least suspect that there's intervention of the Valar, right? You know, what kind of, uh, what kind of data can we, can we, can we get on that? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so that was brief. That was good. Okay. So the road crossing, there were a bunch of different comments on the road, on the road crossing. That is like my, my disturbance about like how the Nazgul could see them from a distance and call out, um, and my dissatisfaction with the theory that it was the horses, uh, Michael at, um, uh, at whom I met at LA moot was, um, arguing that it, the horses could totally manage it. Uh, and you know, maybe so, maybe, maybe so, uh, maybe the horse would spy something crossing the road, you know, off in the distance, like a mile away, and it would have some reaction to seeing the sudden movement across the road, and the Nazgul would pick up on that and cry out. That's possible. That's possible. Um, but, um, uh, but I'm still not 100% convinced of it. Uh, maybe. Maybe. It just, it seems to me a lot to ask of a horse to say, keep an eye out on that road, 
you know, tell me if you see anything. You know, again, maybe. So there were three other theories that were put forward on the discussion board. Sean was suggesting uh, that the Hobbit's fear makes them visible, thinking about that line when Aragorn says that, you know, we can sense their presence, they sense ours more keenly. So he was suggesting that the their sense, the Nazgul's sense, you know, perception of, uh, you know, their sort of feeling of the Hobbit's would could be intensified by the intensity of the hobbit's fear as certainly they would be they were experiencing it as was described right dread and fear as they crossed the road that you know that sort of spike in their emotions might have made you know be be something that the nazgul could pick up um from a distance that i think is possible um i I, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, that whole feel their presence thing seems to be pretty limited from distance. Uh, the idea that they could perceive that from like a couple miles away seems to me to be a little bit unlikely, but it's conceivable. Uh, Dietlbaum was suggesting that Frodo, of course, is partially in the Wraith world already because of his wound, right? So, uh, and there's lots of reason to think that the Wraith can see quite well. In the Wraith world, right? So that uh, if Frodo were wearing the ring, for instance, they could see they could see him miles away, right? If he were wearing the ring, there's no reason to, to. It's not like their eyes are just non-functional. It's just that they're not interacting with the with the regular world in the normal way. So something that's in their world, in the Wraith world, they there's no reason to think that they couldn't see it quite a distance away. All the thing of all the suggestions, I kind of. Um, I kind of like uh, that one. I, I think that that sort of works. I don't know the extent to which Frodo is really in the Wraith world already. Um, but, you know, especially since I am... Um, well, okay. Uh, sorry, I, I was just going to say something, but then I just came up with an objection to it before I finished saying it. Let me say it, and then I'll say my objection. Um, especially since I've been arguing that in as much as I think the blade is not just a regular steel blade, the tip of which is in Frodo's shoulder, that the you know the the blade itself, the power of the blade, is really an extension of the will of the Witch King, right? That therefore there could be this sort of connection that he might be able to sort of spot that in some sense, that it would make Frodo sort of visible. He'd know where Frodo is, but. My, my objection to that is, well, if that's the case, why on earth, what, what does it have to do with the road, right? It has nothing to do with him coming out in the open physically, out from under the trees, right? I mean, if he can sense where Frodo is because he can sort of feel or see where the splinter is and where the wound caused by the splinter is, what on earth do trees have to do with it? The trees would be no obstruction to that. So that seems probably not... Uh, uh, that doesn't make too much. It does, would, doesn't seem to explain why they would cry out when they cross the road, right? The uh, um, uh, the second, the the third uh, uh, theory was that, of course, that I sh- I was fairly dismissive, fairly quick to dismiss the idea of non-equine spies. Uh, that is, that they have men who are working with them. Um, possibly even Bill Fernie and the Squint-Eyed Southerner, um, whom we only have Strider's suspicion that Bill Fernie would not try to match Strider uh, in the uh, in the woods, right? Um, so, I yeah, I mean, I can see that as possible. I tend still to be skeptical of that, in particular because in order for the timing to work, um, if they're spotted crossing the road by... So imagine Bill Fernie, right? Um, 
Imagine Bill Fernie is with them. And in order for Bill Fernie to be the instrument by which they spot the hobbits and Aragorn and Bill the Pony crossing the road and then the Nazgul yell, we have to imagine, like, he's right with them, right? So that there's like a, a, a Nazgul lookout with a human lookout. Like, so Bill Fernie is there on top of Weathertop with one of the Nazgul and he's watching the road and he sees them and he, like, tells the Nazgul who's standing right there, hey, they're crossing the road and the Nazgul screams, right? It's possible. I mean, I can't rule it out. It's possible. But it seems to me a little odd? I don't know. Um, uh, uh, yeah, don't know. Can't rule it out, as I say. Now, Belongsmond, they would be able to be there, right? Because A, they have access to plenty of horses because they just stole every horse or let loose every horse, right? In the breeze stables. And we know that there was a horse that was actually stolen. Uh, and Bill Fernie might have other horses apart from Bill the Pony that he sold, right? So uh, the squint-eyed Southerner and Bill Fernie could have horses. And so if they're riding on the road on horses, they could easily get there before uh, Strider on foot could uh could get there so you know it's possible it's possible and as um i think i for detail there was um was talking about in his uh, in his uh, uh discussion there um there's a lot i mean of course it's a big area and there's a lot the narrator doesn't know right so that human spies could be uh you know we don't have any evidence positive evidence for human spies right but uh the narrator wouldn't need to ever see them or know that they were there in order for us to imagine that they could well be there. Right. Um, exactly. Tony, they could have recruited Harry Goatleaf. Who knows? Um, so it's possible. It's possible. And I guess, Hmm. I think, I think I find the non equine spies more likely than the equine spies. I have an easier time believing that they're, you know, dragooning folks from Bree like, you know, Harry or Bill, Fernie, uh, or the squint-eyed Southerner, um, and bringing them out there and making them do sentry duty. Uh, I have an easier time believing that than I do believing that their horses are doing the long-distance lookout duty. Um, But, I don't know. But I'm resistant to it, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why. Mm, I don't like it when that happens. I can feel myself resistant to this theory, but I can't explain why. I have to think about it more. Maybe I'll be able to come up with a reason why I don't like this theory, but I don't. Um, Mad Violinist thinks it might be because it doesn't have any, any mythic ring to it. It does seem a little pedestrian. Um... Okay, here's why I don't like it. I think I figured it out. What I don't like about it is that it puts the Nazgul in a weak position in relationship to their slaves. So, because essentially, what they would have to be saying to Bill Fernie is, look, I'm as blind as a bat up here, right? So, I can't see 
whether anybody is crossing the road or not. So I need you to look out for me, right? You let me know. I'll pass it along. It makes like the Nazgul is standing there like, I shall be Bill Fernie's messenger boy, right? Um, uh, um, yeah, and belongs to mine. It's absolutely a Nazgul who's shrieking. There's no question about that, which again is why this idea of like, you know, the Nazgul sitting there would be like, okay, I'm going to scream. I, 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 will, I, will, I will shout out the warning to the other Nazgul just as soon as you, Bill Fernie, you know, tip me the wink here, right? You, you, you tell me if you see anybody and I'll pass it along, right? It makes them the tool, makes them the instrument. It makes them have to say to their slaves, like, we can't do this. Could you do this for us? I mean, they've done that kind of thing before, but they wouldn't. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, one can easily imagine that they could think of a way to do that, which would just be intimidating and not admit weakness, right? I mean, they, could, they don't have to explain. They can just be like, you will tell me when you see them crossing the road. But still, it just, um, it just, um, I agree, you're likely to be daunted if you're in their presence, Mad Violin is. So it's not exactly like I would worry about them losing face in front of Bill Fernie. That's not precisely it. It just seems, this whole method seems to be uh, a method which... Uh, instead of it's almost like equal portion using other people as their tools and and them being the one there's something humble about it right um like i am acknowledging my own inability and i need this to be supplemented by someone else so that i can and that just doesn't seem it doesn't fit them you know Yes, being heavily dependent on others, Stephanie. That's one of the things. Again, it's one thing to say, I'm going to use information from people or even I'm going to use, you know, we're going to use Fernie uh, and the squint-eyed southerner to break into the prancing pony and uh, hog-tie the hobbits and bring them to us, right? Which is presumably what their instructions were on that uh, on that first night. Um, JJ says it's a little too teamwork-like. Yeah, I think that's another thing that's bothering me about it. Um you know, that, that again, it's just like, okay, like, you know, if we combine our resources, we can do this, everybody. Like, yeah, I think that's probably, I think, I think it's another thing that, that's affecting me too. Um, it, um, I'm not saying it couldn't be made to work, um, but I just, uh, yeah, yeah, um, Yeah, so I just I I, th- I think those are the reasons why I'm having a hard time with it, uh, and why I'm 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 not real willing to. So, my number one theory, probably the theory that I like best, and Dietlbaum mentioned this is the one that he prefers as well, is that it's just coincidence. And and uh, uh, one of you were was talking about this um, before as well. Um, yeah, that it's just like it just happens. Like they don't actually spot them. Um, I, that's still probably my favorite reading, actually. Um, my second favorite, I think, of all of these other suggestions is uh, Dietlbaum's comment about Frodo in the Wraith world. Um, but again, I'm still not 100% sure what crossing the road has to do with that or why he would have to be in the open, right? I mean, wouldn't they? Would trees block his view? Right? Necessarily? I'm not sure that they would, really. So, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but I'm also perfectly, perfectly willing to be convinced by people who know way more about horses than I like. If people who horse people among you want to tell me that like what I think is improbable is totally probable. I'm willing to believe it. Totally willing to believe it. I don't know that much about horses. I can totally be convinced. It's just, as the gaffer says, it takes a lot of believing. That's it. You know, but, um, anyway, um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was the second set of comments. One more. Uh, and this was a really great observation uh, from Saxo Runesinger, uh, whose name, uh, whose screen name I love. And uh, anyway, so um, this was a really interesting comment on the subject of why aren't the Nazgul attacking? Right. Great, great comment here. Perhaps the Nazgul strategy was not to confront the hobbits and Strider in the wilderness and instead to track their progress from a distance. As recent discussion has clearly reinforced, the Black Riders aren't exactly known for their skillet brawling, and so they might not seek out a toe-to-toe fight in their current incarnations. Instead, they could be content to track the ring's location and keep tabs on its movement. Keep in mind, being undead and serving a deathless master, they can afford to play the long game. This is true even if the hobbits manage to get to Rivendell. Once the one is there, the nine can post a watch and get word back to Sauron asking for reinforcements and instructions. If it moves again, they seemingly would be able to continue to keep tabs on the ringbearer's whereabouts, allowing the ring to sow dissent and create tensions among the free peoples, certain that eventually the forces of Sauron are sufficient to surround the ring's escort and win the fight, bleeding the opposition dry in the process. In the meantime, if the hobbit succumbs to the Morgul wound and falls under their control, then they have an immediate and early win. The confrontation at the ford might even have been intended to see if Frodo was far enough along to test the question of domination. In this case, things only went wrong for the Nine when the river trap was sprung on them, forcing them out of their current embodiments and denying them the ability to track the One Ring. Now, this later section is discussing something that hasn't happened yet, so I don't really know what he's talking about there. But um, but anyway, I, I, th- I think this is a really great reminder uh, by Saxo Runesinger here, and that is there's a kind of urgency that I think we can assume, um, which might not necessarily be true at all. I think that it's perfectly fair to say, um, uh, I, I, I think it's perfectly fair to say that they're not like they're, they don't necessarily feel terribly urgent, right? They have found the ring. They know just where it is. Right. And what's more, they know that, the ring bearer has a wound which any day, any moment really uh, could enslave him to their domination. He's going to come to them of his, of his own volition. Right. And they can take him back to Mordor. Great. Problem solved. Mission accomplished. Right. But as he says, even if they get to, it's not like them getting to Rivendell is a disaster from the ring rates point of view. Right. Now what? Remember, Elrond is going to say, like, the, in the Council of Elrond, they're going to say, okay, we've got the ring here. Could we keep it and prevent Sauron from ever getting it? No. I mean, if they fort up in Rivendell with the ring, no problem, right? Sauron just comes, brings his whole armies to bear on Rivendell, ignore everything else, right? And, uh, uh, and he can get the ring back. Not really a big deal, 
right? That's still a win for Sauron and a comparatively easy win for Sauron, actually, right? Um, now, uh, Corey Schwab has a really good point, which is that Sauron is legitimately afraid of a rival claiming the ring. If it gets to Rivendell, uh, it's more likely that a plausible rival will arise. Now, that is true. Um, but again, I think this is where, as Saxa was pointing out, um, uh, what was that uh, business about what would happen? Um, oh, yeah, the ring sowing uh, dissension and creating tensions among the free peoples, right? That's what Gandalf says Sauron is going to be looking out for. He's going to assume that if it comes to Rivendell, the elf lords there are all going to start fighting over it because only one hand at a time can wield the one, right? So that, you know, the ring lord will, the new ring lord will emerge. But again, if he comes in and stomps on it, um, so, I mean, I, I agree. It's not a totally non risk factor, but again, it's not like they're like, if it gets to Rivendell, we're, you know, everything has been in vain. Like, no, it's not been in vain. Like they still have it cornered. They still know where it is. Um, they can get word back to their master and he can, uh, uh, and he can, come and help take care of things. Right. Um, so anyway, um, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think that this is really important to remember. Um, they don't have their, you know, yes. Do, do they want to secure the ring before it gets to Rivendell? Sure. Cause they'll see this as an opportunity, right? But remember, it's not like the ring is undefended. They tried to come in and take it, and it failed, right? The other thing that I've been reflecting on a little bit more, too, keep in mind, when we've been talking about the relative strength of the Nazgul and uh, how much difficulty the Nazgul have been having out here, which, again, I think it shouldn't diminish our sense of the ring rates. It should increase our respect for Strider and for the Hobbits, even, like, the Hobbits of like, the Shire, Um Again, Gandalf is going to hint along exactly these lines, right? That when, you know, remember the oppression of spirit and the difficulty that Frodo and Sam have when they're in Mordor, right? In the heart of the enemy's realm. Um, the Black Riders seem to have a similar kind of experience to that when they're in the Shire, right? It's, it's hard on them, right? Uh, it's not that they're weak. It's that the Shire is strong and the hobbits are strong, spiritually strong, strong in the ways that oppose that, you know, that, that are most opposed to the power uh, of the ringwraiths. They persevere. But remember, when they get back, when we next see them, they're going to have been upgraded, right? Sauron is going to have done something. Um, and it, the more I've thought about that, the more it seems like that seems to be like a sort of direct response to this, right? Um, the ring race, he, he will have heard. Sauron will have gotten the full report about what happened, right? Um, and ap after the Ford Lincoln, yeah, I'm talking about when we meet them down in, uh, uh, yeah, you know, in, in like the outskirts of Mordor, uh, you know, in, in the marshes and um, in, uh, in Gondor and everything. Um, he's going to upgrade them. Uh, and I'm, I am more and more inclined to think that this is Sauron saying, okay, you know, the next time this happens, forget about it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm upgrading the ring wraiths so that, uh, you know, they are not going to be able to, be, you know, no, no, no ranger singing by the campfire, 
right, is going to be able to uh, to beat off the, the you know five of the ring wraiths now, right? Um, and the Witch King seems in particular to have gotten a substantial upgrade. Though, as we already see, he's, I think he's already pretty, pretty clearly head and shoulders uh, above the others anyway. Um, but anyhow, okay. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a good reminder, I think. Um, the long game, lots of people are about the long game. Uh, and I th- the, the, the primary thing that I really liked about Saxo's observation here is it seems to me to fit very well with what we hear from the other side. Right, what Elrond and the others are gonna say at the Council of Elrond, their worries about what Sauron is gonna do and what it, you know, what all these things mean and everything, um, what might happen, what might have happened, all of those doubts and fears and worries that they have fit, to, I think, very well with uh, the situation as Saxo is describing it here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony asks, do I think it's an instance of Sauron putting his power into his servants the way that Morgoth did? Yep, I do. I do think that. I do think that Sauron weakens himself further in order to upgrade the Ringwraiths. Um, yep. I mean, I don't know any other mechanism by which that's possible. Um, so, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I have an idea. Let's get to the text finally. All right. Frodo's dreams. (laughs) See, like I said, though, lots of people, lots of comments uh, uh, still wanting to go back uh, other thing, uh, over things. So, okay. The hills now began to shut them in. The road behind held on its way to the river Bruinen, but both were now hidden from view. Both the road and the river. Right, okay. The travelers came into a long valley, narrow, deeply cloven, dark and silent. Trees with old and twisted roots hung over cliffs and piled up behind it, and, and, and piled up behind into mounting slopes of pine wood. The hobbits grew very weary. They advanced slowly, for they had to pick their way through a pathless country, encumbered by fallen trees and tumbled rocks. As long as they could avoid, as long as they could, they avoided climbing for Frodo's sake, and because it was in fact difficult to find any way up out of the narrow dales. They had been two days in this country when the weather turned wet. The wind began to blow steadily out of the west and pour the water of the distant seas on the dark heads of the hills in fine drenching rain. By nightfall they were all soaked, and their their camp was cheerless, for they could not get any fire to burn. The next day the hills rose still higher and steeper before them, and they were forced to turn away northwards out of their course. Strider seemed to be getting anxious— they were nearly ten days out from Weathertop, and their stock of provisions was beginning to run low. It went on raining. That night they camped on a stony shelf with a rock wall behind them, in which there was a shallow cave, a mere scoop in the cliff. Frodo was restless. The cold and wet had made his wound more painful than ever, and the ache and sense of deadly chill took away all sleep. He lay tossing and turning and listening fearfully to the stealthy night noises. Wind in chinks of rock, water dripping, a crack, the sudden rattling fall of a loosened stone. He felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him, but when he sat up, he saw nothing but the back of Strider, sitting hunched up, smoking his pipe and watching. He lay down again and passed into an uneasy dream, in which he walked on the grass of his garden in the Shire, but it seemed faint and dim, less clear than the tall black shadows that stood looking over the hedge. 
I love that image. Uh, but we'll we'll get back. I want to focus first on those first two paragraphs, uh, the description of the land around them and the difficulties that they're having. And I agree with you. Both Oakwig and Tony are uh, thinking about the uh, the active language, the anthropomorphic language uh, used to describe the landscape uh, there. And uh, uh, I agree. I love that image of the trees with old and twisted roots hung over the cliffs and piled up behind into mounting slopes of pine wood. Um, the idea of the, 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 the pine woods up on the slopes of the mountain, like they're, they're trees that are piled up, right? Um, which, especially looking up from the, the, the deep valleys that they are in, uh, is, a, is, is a, really, um, a really neat um, description. Um, they're avoiding climbing for Frodo's sake. Because, of course, if they have to climb too steeply, he's going to have to get off the horse and walk himself. right? So they're trying to keep things... Um, uh, they're trying to keep things as sort of as gentle as possible, right? To enable him to continue riding. Um, the rain, of course, one of the things that I can't help but think of throughout this passage is memories of um, uh, memories of the Hobbit, right? Um, there are several places that several moments in The Hobbit that this paragraph reminds me of, right? First, of course, is the night that they encountered the trolls, which was not far from where uh, Strider and Frodo are here geographically, right? Um, that was the night, you know, the drip drip was very annoying and they couldn't get the fire to light. Even Owen and Glowen, who were particularly good at lighting fires, couldn't get the fire to light that night, right? So um, that's the first and, and, and kind of clearest connection. But the second is that description of the, uh, uh, where they, uh, where's that, the business. Oh yeah. On the beginning of the third paragraph there, um, that night they camped on a stony shelf with a rock wall behind them in which there was a shallow cave, a mere scoop in the cliff, right? Um, like them trying to huddle for shelter on the, you know, as the, the storm is blowing around them, uh, as they're going up the Misty Mountains in the beginning of chapter four, right before they find the, um, the, uh, good cave and, and, uh, and unused, which is of course the front doorstep of the goblins, of course, as we find out. Um, so both of those, uh, connections, right. Remembering the, the sort of, the misery which led the dwarves into rashness and foolishness, right? Going to investigate that strange fire in the wilderness was rash, right? Um, this is something that I think is pretty clear when we read that, that this was just, that it was a dumb move. Um, it turns out they were trolls, right? You, 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 no, you didn't actually want to go closer to that fire, right? Um, remember the, I mean, the comment that, I remember talking about in my book in which, uh, which really strikes you when you read it closely is how, you know, they say anything is better, right? Anything is better than, you know, uh, wet night and no fire and, you know, no food until morning. It's like anything really like, you know, being eaten alive by trolls is better than like, no, um, you know, their whole perspective, right. On, uh, uh, the adventuring life, right. Is clearly, uh, sort of skewed. 
So thinking about that connection, right? Comparing and contrasting where Frodo and Strider and the Hobbits are compared to that, right? And where they are is in a much, um, is in a much different place. Exactly, JJ. Anything is better than slight discomfort. Um, look how steely and determined, right? Strider and the Hobbits are compared to the dwarves, right? You know, Merry, Pippin, Sam, Frodo, they might seem kind of, you know, fresh, untested, soft, uh, clueless, right, in Bree. Um, and yet they're they're doing better than Thorn and company, right? We can see, uh, you know, Bilbo in The Hobbit, when he gets to this point geographically, he's still in the... I guess adventures aren't all pony rides under May sunshine, right? Uh, they're already way, way past that. Again, I was already pointing out this um, uh, this phenomenon. Oops. I was uh, pointing out this phenomenon uh, when, uh, when we were looking at um, the line that talked about Bilbo's first adventure, right? His first real adventure and thinking about how many real adventures they've already had, right? How many, this is his, this is, uh, uh, you know, we're coming up, we're still not even quite yet to the place where Bilbo had his first life-threatening adventure, right? And Frodo and the others have already had at least three, right? Even if you don't count Bree uh, and the attempt, uh, the attempt, the attempted kidnapping uh, by Bill Fernie, even without that one, right? what they've experienced from the old forest and then from the Barrow Whites uh, and then from uh, the ring wraiths at Weathertop is already way more, way worse even than Bilbo's trolls, right? So we see the greater intensity of danger, um, but we can see the way that the hobbits are bearing up. Even the fact that the hobbits are focused on avoiding climbing for Frodo's sake, right? They're still thinking of Frodo first. They're not yet so terrified or so miserable that they're just focusing on themselves, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that we can see sort of where where they are, right? That they're still in a good, not just in, a, in, in you know, holding out physically, uh, but they're still sort of in um, in a good place spiritually as well, right? Um and yes, Finn, at least the hobbits have weapons, right? They seem to be better armed uh, than uh, the dwarves. Though I guess it's another thing that they that uh, they and the dwarves have in common is fighting with burning sticks out of the fire, right? That's um, also another sort of trend. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Belongsmond is wondering if that sound of a falling rock could be significant, you know, the sudden rattle, the sudden rattling fall of a loosened stone. Um, does this indicate there might be somebody there? Uh, no, and I certainly don't think that Gollum is there. Um, we're told that it's in Moria that Gollum picks it. It's when we first get the indicators that Gollum is following them, and uh, Strider seems to think that it is in fact in Moria that Gollum picked up their trail. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that... Hmm, I don't think there's any evidence that Gollum ever crossed the Misty Mountains. That Gollum has ever been west of the Misty Mountains in his entire long life. I don't think there's any evidence of that. Um, 
but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's right. I think that's the case based on what Gandalf says in chapter 2 and what we learn later on. Yeah. Oakwig suggests that the the, uh, the uh, sudden rattling fall of a loosened stone is probably Pippin. Right? Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I don't think the stealthy night noise is necessarily indiv- necessarily mean anything. Um as I don't think there's anything necessarily out there. Uh, you hear a lot of such sounds in a wood at night, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Punting. It could be wild animals far off. Again, the loosened stone, it's raining, right? So things get loosened in the rain. Um uh, Alia Eru points out that we have a capital W west here, but yeah, that does seem to be a directional west to blow steadily out of the west. Um, yeah, that seems to be directional rather than significant. <laughs> Tony thinks it's a Valoran intervention. Uh, rocks falling means the Valor intervening. Possibly. And possibly in a way that we just do not understand, right? You never know. You never know. Um, but let's go down to the the two experiences that Frodo has down there at the end. He felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him. Now, note, he's not asleep. Um, we were just told that he lay tossing and turning and listening fearfully to the stealthy night noises. He can't sleep. The ache and sense of deadly chill took away all sleep, we're told. Right? Um, and by the way, I can't imagine how horrible that would be like to be wounded the way that he is right not just having a fresh wound but that this kind of chilling wound right that he has and then to be out and soaked through and freezing cold and the rain is still coming down um it's gotta ache something horrible right it's gotta feel just terrible uh uh right there so easy to imagine his restlessness um he feels that he felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him, but when he sat up, he saw nothing but the back of Strider sitting hunched up, smoking his pipe and watching. Um, and I love this image that we get, almost as if Strider is um, standing between him and the black shapes of Frodo's imagination, right? Um, and you know, I'm 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 wonder, uh, I'm wondering. you know, to what extent there's a perception of truth there, right? Remember Strider's treatment of his wound, right? There were three things involved in Strider's attempt to heal him, or at least to ease his wound. One was the song that he sang over the hilt of the blade, um, presumably some kind of counterspell, some kind of... his trying to reduce the impact or the power or the efficacy of the will behind that weapon, um, opposing that with his own will uh, and his own song. The second was his whispered words. Um, 
to uh, uh, his whispered words to Frodo, which, as I said, I, I think we have every reason to think were kind of like what he did and what he said to Faramir and to Eowyn and to Merry uh, in Gondor later on. Um, that he, you know, he he sort of calls to Frodo and he's reaching out to Frodo with his own will, as we saw him do most clearly with Faramir, as we will see him do most clearly with Faramir. Um, and the third thing was the Athelas, right? So the Athelas was really only the third. And in some ways, it seemed like almost the least of those three things, perhaps. Um, anyway, um... thinking of that second thing in particular, really both of those first two things makes me wonder if Strider is continuing. Um, was Strider's attempt at healing a one-shot deal, right? Did he did he do his healing thing at the beginning there, and now it's just he's done everything he can and he can't do anything else? Or is there any kind of an ongoing resistance to the will, uh, the will behind the wound, right, that Strider is continuing to do with Frodo? We don't really know that for sure. This scene makes me wonder if that's the case, right? Uh, this 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 makes me wonder if he is sort of putting himself in this sense between Frodo and the shadows, if his own will is interposing between the will of the Nazgul and Frodo's heart, right? Frodo's um, uh, Frodo's will, Frodo's wound. Um, he felt that black shapes were advancing to smother him, but all he sees is the back of Strider, uh, sitting hunched up, watching, watching with his back to Frodo, right? watching outward. Um, yeah, Zephan, um, I can't remember. Uh, we we've never, no one has ever caught Strider sleeping yet, right? Uh, Strider has Strider has not slept a bit that we know of uh, in several weeks now. now. I'm sure he has, right? The narrator hasn't just hasn't described it. Um, but when we get descriptions of Strider, all we get are descriptions of his vigilance, uh, not uh, ever of his sleeping. Um, yeah. Um, Interesting. Tony's wondering if uh, Frodo is actually perceiving something. So one question to be asked about this. Is this a hallucination or a kind of a dream? Or is there some kind of perception here? Um, Mad Violinist was suggesting that... um, uh, Mad Violinist was suggesting that uh, the... Frodo's sensation here is a continuation of the spiritual attack to, to subdue Frodo's will. So there is a sense in which, at least metaphorically, it is in fact true, right, that black shadows are advancing uh, to smother him, right? His They are attempting, the Nazgul are still attempting to smother his will. Um, that he would be subject to a continued spiritual attack from the Nazgul, even remotely, you know, as facilitated by the wound, that seems to me to be possible, Right, um, and by the way, that would be another way, perhaps, of thinking about the question: Why don't the Nazgul attack the camp again? Right? Answer: They are attacking the camp again. Right? This is them attacking the camp again, um, and Frodo has to resist, and possibly Strider has to resist that as well. Um, 
Tarlonio is thinking, at least he only sees them as shadows and he doesn't see their true forms. The latter would probably be a very bad sign. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I still, by the way, a couple people have continued with the theory that Strider needs less sleep because he has elvish blood in him from, you know, distant generations. I'm still very resistant to that. Um, he is mortal. Uh, yes, I know he is, you know, related to, he has the blood of Luthien in him and stuff, but I don't buy that at all. Uh, the, the, the non-sleeping that we will see, uh, that we will hear Legolas describe later on, uh, which is the passage all of you guys are thinking about, this sort of wandering in elvish dreams that Legolas describes. Um, that is the experience of the elves. I, 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 just like their spirits and bodies are related to each other differently than mortal spirits and bodies are related to each other. It's part of being a mortal. It's part of like the whole elvish package, what it means to be one of the firstborn of Iluvatar. I totally do not think that having some elvish blood... Might, he's mortal. Strider is mortal, right? He is a human being, uh, and his body and spirit are related to each other like human beings' bodies and spirits are. Um, anyway, so I... Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, he is a Numenorian and everything like that. That's totally fine. Um, that could potentially be, you know, give him strength that others don't have, but it would be a degree of strength that others don't have. Like it would be like, he would still be immortal. He might be a mortal with unusually high, uh, uh, you know, uh, resilience, right. And, uh, stamina. Um, but he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't be experiencing. He wouldn't experience sleep differently the way that elves experience sleep differently that I just, that I just don't, don't believe. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> if Strider took the, an ancestry DNA test, what percentage of elf heritage, uh, would he see? <laughs> I'm not sure. You have to do the math, right? You can totally do the math on that. Um, uh, you know, going back to Baron and Luthien, right? And through, uh, his, you know, go back through to Elros, right? Decide to figure out the genetic percentage of Elros Tarminutar, right? And then, you know, go down and do the math as it goes through generate. You can count the generations. We're given the number of generations directly, right? So you can totally do the math. It would be small, though. A quite small percentage. Um, yeah, Trifle thinks it's 64 generations <clears throat> between Elros and Aragorn. That sounds about right, anyway, in the ballpark, anyhow. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. No, Mad Violinist, I was just thinking of that, too. We do see him sleep during the, the journey of the Three Hunters, right? We see him cast himself down on the ground and sleep. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, JJ is wondering, do we know the spouses of every single one of the ancestors and know that they weren't elves? It doesn't explicitly say, I don't think, but I have to think that in the absence of other information, we have to believe that, you know, all of the 
unnamed wives of everybody along the road were human. That's an assumption to an extent, but I, I, I don't see much reason to doubt that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's small. It's a small percentage. Definitely. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole three elf man pairings in history thing. Not going to get into that. There are obviously other examples. No, we'll get there. When the text says that, we'll talk about that. And I'm not going to borrow that one. Um, uh, (laughs) Talking about Frodo's nocturnal experience is enough for today. Um, Okay. Exactly. Mad Violinist. Dol Amroth. See, this is me not going there. Um, Okay, okay, okay. Black shapes advancing to smother him, right? Probably not literally, but but that doesn't mean it's not real, right? That they're not really smothering him. There is a sense in which I think that they're that they're really smothering him, um, uh, even though they're not physically present. Now he passes into his uneasy dream, um, and this is my favorite bit here, in which he walked on the grass in his garden in the Shire. So he's walking on the grass. First of all, it's interesting to me that he's outside. What's interesting to me about that, especially given that I've been remembering The Hobbit all the way through this whole, you know, these last few paragraphs, um, I can't help but, um, I can't help but think back to Bilbo, right? And his constant memories of home throughout uh, his journey. But of course, the, um, Memories of his journey were all indoor memories, right? He was remembering Bag End, sitting by the fire with the kettle just beginning to sing, right? Frodo doesn't remember Bag End. He doesn't think about Bag End. He thinks about his garden and walking in his garden and walking on the grass in his garden in the Shire. That phrase, walked on the grass, reminds me of... It's not exactly like what Tom Bombadil says after the Barrow White that was run naked on the grass, which is a little bit different. We don't, we're not explicitly told that Frodo is dreaming of himself clothed here. He might be imagining himself walking naked on the grass, but, um, uh, but I, but that's, I don't think that's, uh, necessarily the case. The point is, remember, that was part of the sort of therapeutic treatment, right? When they were, um, when they, the hobbits, had been under the influence of an oppressive, evil spell before, right? They were, remember Frodo waking up and he's like, we are under the dreadful spells of the Barrow Whites, right? When that happened before, um, part of the cure was running on the grass, right? Um, there's sort of something about that. And Tony, that's the other thing that I was thinking of, um, that he will forget the feel of grass in Mordor, right? This is exactly the kind of thing. Um, oops, sorry, just totally hit the wrong thing here. Okay, there we go. Um, anyhow, so um, this is, I, I wonder if there's a sort of a similarity to that, right? We've seen him in his own sort of vision have two, um, two thoughts, Right, two different memories, uh, or sort of 
visions or whatever it is, right? That one is the dark shadows coming towards him to smother him. The other is himself walking on the grass and not just any grass, right? The grass in the Shire and not just anywhere in the Shire, but in his garden in the Shire. So we have the associations with home, but we also have uh, the associations of being out on the grass, right? Um, and, uh, but it seemed faint and dim, right? He, he can't see his garden very well, right? Um, you know, you've got this, like, sort of connection, not just with Bag End, but with the Shire itself. And, um, yeah, um, Ambrosius Aurelianus, I agree. Frodo isn't just thinking of his own personal comforts like Bilbo was uh, in in The Hobbit, but of the good things that grow in the Shire as a whole. Um, yes, yes. And Matt reminds us that Bilbo will say specifically that Frodo loves the Shire uh, rather than Bag End. Yes, yes. Um, so there seems... I, I think that that walking in the grass in his garden, it's a Bag End context, Right. Um, and that I do think that that's what he's thinking of when he's thinking of his garden, his garden at Bag End. Um, but it also is a larger connection to the Shire as a whole, right? And I do think that that's, that's connection. Again, if the, if the black shadows coming in to smother him are like the, you know, the power which is working on him to suppress his will and ultimately smother and kill his will, um, his memory, his, this vision of walking on the grass you know, this connection with the, um, with the garden, with the Shire, with Bag End. Um, so with home, with, with everything that the Shire is associated with, um, uh, is like sort of the opposite side of that, right? His own will fighting for survival, um, fighting to cling to these good things, those things that were so difficult for the Black Riders, right? Um, those things which are so un-Nazgul, um, him clinging to those things, but they're fading, right? They're dim and faint, um, less clear than the tall black shadows that stood looking over the hedge. The idea of the hedge, I think, is a really important one here. They're not there, right? That is to say, they're not in the garden. Um, he's not walking amongst the Black Riders in his garden. He's walking in his garden, the Black Riders are looming outside his garden. They're like lined up along the hedge just outside the border of his garden. They're not in it yet, right? But they're right there. And they're clearer. They are more present than the garden. It's how the whole garden is starting to fade so that he can barely see it or remember it. And Tony, I do think it's really important to recall the state that Frodo is going to be in. Right, right before he gets to Mount Doom, where he can't remember the Shire at all, he can't picture it or hear it or feel it at all. Um, so um, anyway, there's still a boundary, and I think this is really important. This is a this is a little snapshot, I think, of Frodo's spiritual state. Right, there's still a barrier, and the Black Riders are still on the other side of it. Those black shapes that want to smother him can't get to him yet. Right, but things are things are weakening right um they already seem more real than the garden that they're still being excluded from right um he can still maintain his connection to home to the shire to uh light and life and encouragement but it's 
weaker, right? Um, it's still there, and it still does keep the Black Riders at a distance. There's still a barrier. Uh, they still can't come into it. Um, but it's it's fading, and it, it's interesting. It seems like that you know they're not. It's like they're attacking the hedge, like the old forest did, right? uh, uh, attacking the high hay. Um, they're just standing there, right? They're just standing there while the entire garden hedge and all uh, grows faint and dim around him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mad violinist is thinking that. Um, uh, the hedge is the boundary between his world and the dark part of fairy. Yes. I'm not sure I want to go in the fairy direction here exactly. Uh, but certainly, because it seems to me more about, I don't know, uh, home and health and life versus, you know, death and darkness and slavery that is closing in upon him, right? Uh, it seems to me a little bit more of a of a good versus evil thing. Um, yeah, yeah. You're right, uh, Mad Violinist, though, about the, the significance of the boundary, right? And boundaries being very important uh, in fairy and this idea of the wild being outside. In fact, the hedge, as I already mentioned, one of the things, obviously, that the hedge reminds me of uh, is the hedge keeping the old forest out. So thinking about that frontier between the Shire on the one side and the forest on the other side, the dark, dangerous, malevolent forest, uh, which is pressing in and at times attacking the hedge and trying to tear down that boundary, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to think about this to remember this scene later on, I think, but certainly when we get to Mordor, uh, we're going to want to be recalling this scene. Um, but it will be interesting to see at Rivendell too, as he is healing, um, uh, how we see the text sort of dealing with, with this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Who went backwards accidentally when I want to go forwards. All right. In the morning, he woke to find that the rain had stopped. The clouds were still thick, but they were breaking, and pale strips of blue appeared between them. The wind was shifting again. They did not start early. Immediately after their cold and comfortless breakfast, Strider went off alone, telling the others to remain under the shelter of the cliff until he came back. He was going to climb up, if he could, and get a look at the lie of the land. When he returned, he was not reassuring. "'We have come too far to the north,' he said." and we must find some way to turn back southwards again. If we keep on as we are going, we shall get up into the Ettendales, far north of Rivendell. That is troll country, and little known to me. We could perhaps find our way through and come round to Rivendell from the north, but it would take too long, for I do not know the way, and our food would not last. So somehow or other, we must find the ford of Bruinen. Okay, so notice that Strider is already out of his reckoning, remember, uh, to some extent, right? Remember, this is... Strider is in a different place than he was when he was guiding them from Bree to Weathertop, right? My cuts, short or long, don't go wrong. Um, he knew the country well between Bree and Weathertop, and although they seemed to be foraging across country, Strider knew his way, 
right? Um, he wasn't guessing. He wasn't just navigating by the stars or whatever, right? He knew the land. He doesn't know the land here. He's got to go up to a high place to look around and see where they are. Um, so that to me is kind of interesting. He's taken them up these ravines, right? To the north of the road. And he has not had uh, a clear plan in mind, right? He's going up there. He's like, well, we can't keep going the way that we're going. We need to shift. We need to turn, right? Um, shouldn't he know this country well also, Bricktails asks. Apparently less well than he knows uh, the land uh, from uh, <laughs> the land from uh, Bree to Weathertop. Luke says, the Ettendales is where Grandpa died. Mom said it's out of bounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, uh, it certainly did. Eridor was killed up in there. Um, we don't know. Yes, he grew up in Rivendell. Growing up in Rivendell doesn't necessarily mean that he knows this country very well. I mean, yes, we're close to Rivendell. But when he grew up in Rivendell, uh, you know, he probably didn't leave Rivendell until he was, I mean, you know, um, I'm thinking mom was pretty protective there. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think he's, this is obviously not the route that he would normally take. Um, again, he seemed to have some direct routes that he knew even through the marshes. Right. Um, but, uh, he does not seem to, he, he clearly doesn't have a route in mind that he's following, knowing where he's going. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's clearly, as Matt says, he's gone off the beaten path, uh, trying to avoid the roads and easier paths, as Tony was just saying also, um, uh, taking them where horses can't go easily. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> JJ says, uh, saying that he grew up in Rivendell so he should know this country really well is kind of like saying I grew up in New York City. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I know the area around, uh, uh, you know, Schenectady or, uh, Syracuse really well. Uh, not necessarily, <laughs> right? Not necessarily. Uh, and actually, you know, JJ, that New York and Rivendell parallel is, is not terrible actually, right? You know, the growing up in Rivendell and feeling like that was the entire world, barely being aware that there's a world outside of the valley, right? Just like uh, uh, New Yorkers are so uh, unaware of that there's anything outside of New York. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, but uh, again, like whatever the explanation, the fact is clear. He does not know this country really well. He, does, he is not following a path uh, that he had strategically planned. He's winging it in this countryside. And that's why he has to look around and why they need to change their path, right? Um, they have to get around towards Bruinen. And Oakwig, it is possible, I agree, that the Adirondacks are troll country. <laughs> that's, that seems a good reading uh, uh, to me. Um, yeah, um... Yes, Tony, you're right that poor Bill the Pony is getting dragged through all this country, which is, like, hostile to horsemen, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Bill the Pony also showing his, uh, uh, th that he's made of sterner stuff, uh, than, uh, uh, he might have looked at first, right? Absolutely. Um, 
somehow or other, we must find the Ford of Bruinen. Although they can get themselves lost, right, so that they're not going to uh, get tracked down, um, he can he can keep them out of the way, right? But some point or other, they've got to cross Bruinen. There's no point, you know, they, they have, there are these two, you know, the rivers create these two choke points that they can't avoid, they got very fortunate the first time, right, with the last bridge and the Elfstone. What's going to happen at the Ford of Bruinen? I don't really know. Um, you know, nobody knows that. But Strider's saying we've, you know, we've, we've got to do it, right? We've got to, we've got to go back that way. So in the in the end, what Strider is doing is a long cut, right? He's doing a long cut between the last bridge and the Ford of Bruinen. Um, and it's not exactly going wrong, uh, but he needs to make a course correction here. All right. Cold and comfortless breakfast, right? Again, there's there's hobbits on adventure, right? They're cold and comfortless breakfast. Uh, we hear not only about their breakfast, but, uh, uh, you know that their breakfast should not only be cold, but also comfortless. Oh, what a sad state of affairs. Again, what a, what a, what a, what another testimony to how stalwart these hobbits are being, right? Um, Tony, I'm not sure what they're eating, um, but they seem to have taken some non-perishable food, right? So I'm assuming they're eating things like nuts, dried fruits, right? Uh, Probably they don't have anything like bread uh, because they've been, they left Brie, what, more than two weeks ago now. They're 10 days out from Weathertop. Um, so, uh, and it, it took them a number of days to get to Weathertop. So, um, you know, they, they could have some kind of traveling biscuit, I suppose, uh, something crammish, perhaps. Um, Jerky, quite possibly. Dried meat, that seems that seems conceivable. But I would think that they would have to be uh, eating that sort of food. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I love seeing people's <laughs> votes for what a, a comfortless breakfast looks like. Uh, uh, <laughs> grape nuts and Weetabix. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Alia Eru points out that, uh, uh, the alliteration in cold and comfortless breakfast, um, makes it sound particularly harsh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, low fat bacon, JJ, or like turkey bacon. Yeah, no, I don't think it's not. Uh, he said it was a comfortless breakfast, not that it was a sadistic breakfast. Um, anyway, okay, let's keep going. The rest of that day they spent scrambling over rocky ground. They found a passage between two hills that led them into a valley running southeast, the direction they wished to take. But towards the end of the day they found their road again barred by a, high ri by a ridge of high land. Its dark edge against the sky was broken into many bare points like the teeth of a blunted saw. They had a choice between going back or climbing over it. They decided to attempt the climb but it proved very difficult. Before long, Frodo was obliged to dismount and struggle along on foot. Even so, they often despaired of getting their pony up, or indeed of finding a path for themselves, burdened as they were. 
The light was nearly gone, and they were all exhausted, when at last they reached the top. They had climbed on to a narrow saddle between two higher points, and the land fell steeply away again, only a short distance ahead. Frodo threw himself down and lay on the ground, shivering. His left arm was lifeless, and his side and shoulder felt as if icy claws were laid upon them. The trees and rocks about him seemed shadowy and dim. Okay. Um... What's wrong with turkey bacon? Well, nothing. It's just not bacon. The only thing wrong with it is when people try to substitute it. Uh, Anyway, yeah. It's immoral and wrong, as as Tony says. Exactly. It's okay in its way, right? Uh, For what it is. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, okay, anyway. um, Once again, again, notice the clear evidence here that Strider is out of his reckoning, right? Um, they're, they're, this is, they're, they're improvising here, right? Trying to find a path that goes in the direction that they're looking to go and then finding that they've come to not quite a dead end, uh, but to exactly the kind of thing that they've been trying to avoid for Frodo's sake, right? They have to do actual arduous climbing. Um, and it's very difficult for them to get, uh, um, to get the pony up. Uh, and of course, Frodo has to climb right in his state on, uh, um, uh, on foot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you guys are still talking about fake bacon. <laughs> There's some strong feelings, uh, in this chat room about, uh, uh, Oh, tofu bacon. Oh, man, that is cruel. Yeah, yeah, no, that's probably... Um, <laughs> the mad violinist is suggesting turkey bacon is is what the strips of meat were that uh, Ugluk tossed to Mary and Pippin. <laughs> that's why they didn't eat it, because you just can't be sure, right? The flesh of who dared guess what creature. It could be turkey, right? You never know. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um yeah, I clearly tofu bacon is a contrivance of the enemy. Um, uh, again, not saying that tofu is not okay in its own way, right? Uh, but, um, uh, yeah. Anyhow, okay. Um, yeah, Bricktails thinks that tofu bacon is something that would have been distributed in Sharky's Shire. Possibly. Possibly. Anyway, okay. So, so um, uh, the effect on Frodo is, I think, one of the important things here. Again, first, just notice, like, the hobbits are troopers, right? Um, Aragorn would not have been having a, uh, a uh, um, would not have been having a problem with this, right, on his own. Um, but, um, uh, but the, the, the hobbits are really showing their mettle here. Um, all of the hobbits are heavily burdened, right? They're, they, they brought a pack animal for a reason, right? Um, uh, they, they brought a pack animal for a reason because they, they needed one for the baggage. Remember, even Strider was like, we can't, you know, we're not going to be able to, uh, uh, t- you know, we, we need to have at least one pony uh, for baggage. Now they're carrying all that baggage on their backs, 
so that Frodo can ride um, in his injured state. So the, 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 what the hobbits are accomplishing in uh, making this climb uh, with the huge packs that they're having to carry um, and the fact that Frodo makes it at all, right? And the fact that Bill the Pony makes it. I mean, all of them uh, deserve great props for the, the climb here. And the description is uh, makes it really clear, right? That it's it proved very difficult. We get like the understated description at the very beginning, right? And then, uh, you know, we hear about the, you know, the near despair and the uh, they can barely find a way up for themselves, right? And they're all exhausted, Frodo throwing himself down when they reach the top. Um, the um, the description here of Frodo's wound is particularly interesting, right? He, his left arm is is lifeless, um, and his side and shoulder felt as if icy claws were laid upon them. Um, so he is clearly at least as bad, right, as uh, he was right right after he was stabbed right before um strider did his healing thing um his arm was lifeless at first right and uh and he felt the cold going down his side um the icy claws is interesting right it's 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 cold but it's this biting it's like the cold that's digging into his flesh um which is an interesting little sort of reminder right um an interesting little reminder of the fact that there is something that's physically digging into his flesh. You know, this shard, this splinter uh, of the knife that is burrowing into his flesh. Um, he is, in fact, being stabbed, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, Tony's right that we do have to keep in mind that Hobbits do know how to work. That's certainly true. They live in an in, in agrarian society. As Tony says their life is good, but not easy. Yes, that's true. Although, as Catriona points out, that Sam is the only one who actually does that kind of work. Uh, it's true. Frodo and Merry and Pippin are rich boys, right? Um, so I don't know how much working of the land uh, they do. Um, now, they've gone on walking tours and things, right? So they're not totally out of shape, um, but they're not going to be used to, to hard labor. Though, again, the labor that they are used to is like this, right? Walking tours, right? They've done this this kind of thing before. Um, but, um, yeah, and but anyway, Trifle, I agree about the claws. It is interesting that, it's, that it describes the claws as being laid, as if icy claws were laid upon them, right? Um, he doesn't feel like they're stabbing deep into his side. That's not what he experiences. It's like you can, um, uh, he can feel the claws pressing against him, but not yet ripping. It's almost like this sense of like it, they're, they're about to tear into me, right? He feels like they are about to stab through, uh, his side and into his heart, but they haven't yet. Right. Um, but he can feel them there like he's being held, but not just held securely or being held firmly, um, held in a grip that could stab through him any minute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And no, Lincoln, I am not going to take the bait and talk about where Frodo's income comes from. Nope. <laughs> not going there. Um, notice that the trees and rocks about him seemed shadowy and dim. That's obviously important, right? Um, 
the real world around him is starting to fade, and we haven't seen that exactly. Uh, we haven't seen exactly that happening much before, right? Um, this is clearly an important stage. The exertion uh, seems to have brought this on, which is kind of interesting. Like as his, um, as his body is weakening, his spirit seems to be weakening as well. Um, and I, I do think that we see, as Tony was just saying, the spirit affects the flesh and the flesh affects the spirit. I think that we can see those things kind of bowing, going both directions here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, shadowy and dim. Another interesting little piece, perhaps, little tidbit, pointing out to us uh, the limitation of Nazgul's sight, right? If even to Frodo in the state that he's in, not anything like fully in the Wraith world yet, right? Um, if uh, if even to him, the trees and rocks are seeming shadowy and dim, uh, they've got to be much more shadowy and dim, right, to the Nazgul. Um, good. Hey, let's see if we can get to one more. We cannot go any further, said Mary to Strider. I am afraid this has been too much for Frodo. I am dreadfully anxious about him. What are we to do? Do you think that they will be able to cure him in Rivendell if we ever get there? We shall see, answered Strider. There is nothing more that I can do in the wilderness, and it is chiefly because of his wound that I am so anxious to press on. But I agree that we can go no further tonight. What is the matter with my master? asked Sam in a low voice, looking appealingly at Strider. His wound was small, and it is already closed. There's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Frodo has been touched by the weapons of the enemy, said Strider, and there is some poison or evil at work that is beyond my skill to drive out. But do not give up hope, Sam. Okay. Um, yes, Mad Violinist, I agree. That description of the landscape, the trees and the rocks there, is a callback to the description of his vision while wearing the ring. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so Mary is afraid this has been too much for Frodo, and he's dreadfully anxious about him. Um, what are we to do? Do you think they will be able to cure him in Rivendell if we ever get there? Um, I agree that, um, Tony, you're right. Aragorn is treating Mary with the respect of an equal here. Um, he's not, he's not talking down to him, nor is he, um, he's not sugarcoating stuff here, right? Um, we've seen him withhold information before. Right, so as not to worry them. And it's interesting, when Mary confesses his anxiety, he responds honestly, right? Um, do you think they will be able to cure him in Rivendell if, ever, if we ever get there? Well, that would be an easy question to answer yes to, wouldn't it, Strider? Right? Oh, yes, I'm sure they'll be able to heal him at Rivendell. Well, that hurts so much, Strider, but no, that's not what he says, right? We shall see. Maybe, maybe not. I'm making you no promises, right? He doesn't... Uh, he doesn't sugarcoat things, right? He just says, we shall see. And then goes on to add 
somewhat unnecessarily, right, providing more information than Mary asked for, uh, there's nothing more that I can do in the wilderness, right? Let me emphasize that I can't do anything more for him here. Now, he's doing that for a reason. He wants to explain why it's so urgent, right? It is chiefly because of his wound that I am so anxious to press on. I am anxious too, Mary. You're anxious. I'm anxious too. Our anxiety should lead us not to take it easy on Frodo. That's Mary's argument, right? We can't go any further. I'm afraid this has been too much for Frodo. We're pushing. We need to let Frodo rest, right? And Strider is saying, I'm anxious too, but here I've got a little bit more information than you do, right? You think he needs rest and to take it easy, and I totally get that, right? Um, uh, but uh, actually, no, that's kind of the opposite of what we need, right? We need to hurry um, because... He, I, there's nothing I can do, right? If we are slow in the wilderness, he's likely to die. Um, uh, Tony, great question. Tony asks, what are we to take from the fact that the narrator keeps using the name Strider here, even though we know his real name by now? That seems to be a, a reflection. We have lots of evidence to see that uh, the 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 hobbits are always going to think of him as strider they're still calling him strider like after the coronation right so um and the the narrative seems to be uh reflecting that right since it's sort of from the hobbit point of view there um so yeah though that's another thing we can keep an eye on right how does the narrator refer to aragorn right um and it's still very definitively strider all the way, all the way through here. Um, so yes, because we're anx- we're both anxious. We need to. So he 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 seeks not to allay his anxiety, but in a sense to increase it, or at least to divert it. Right? Be anxious not about pushing too hard. Be anxious about waiting too long. Right? Um, but I agree that we can go no further tonight. Um, and Dime, I agree, that phrase is a really interesting one. Uh, asked Sam in a low voice, looking appealingly at Strider, looking appealingly at Strider, is really interesting, right? And to me, the most interesting thing about that, like the fact that he is appealing to Strider. Um, there are a couple things that I would sort of point out here. Um, first is, of course, the contrast with Sam. Right, Sam has been the most suspicious of all of the hobbits of Strider. Right. Oh, sorry, O'Malley. Thank you for reminding me. I keep losing track of Narnia in here. Um, Sam has been the most suspicious of Strider all the way through, um, or at least the most cautious in releasing his suspicion. Um, this seems to me, on the one hand, this moment seems to be Sam reciprocating what Strider did before. Remember after Strider comes back and Sam draws his sword on him, right? He takes Sam aside for a confidential talk. Um, you know, uh, you know, your, your, your master, remember when he takes him aside and he has that quiet talk with Sam, just the two of them, Sam seems to be reciprocating here, right? Um, he's also speaking in a low voice. This is another private conversation. This time it's Sam who has initiated the private conversation when Aragorn initiated that previously, he gave Sam more information, right, um, about the 
about the attack, about Frodo's wound, right? He he believes th- this is where th- that was the moment when he revealed that he thinks that that the he believes that the Black Riders think that uh, Frodo has received a deadly wound, right? Um, so he uh, um, he. he was giving Sam kind of inside information on what was really going on. Sam seems to be appealing Dime to him for that, for more information, right? Mary says, I'm afraid this has been too much for Frodo. I'm dreadfully anxious about him. Sam wants more. Okay, yes. Okay, sure. This does seem to have been too much for Frodo. Sam is also anxious about him, but Sam is like, look, this doesn't make any sense to me. Yes, he's wounded, okay? But it was just in the shoulder. It was a small wound, and it's getting better. Why is he not getting better? He seems to be not getting better, Strider. Can you explain this? And again, remember, Strider was the one who, in their earlier private conversation, said, I think that the enemy thinks he has a deadly wound, right? So, more information on this, Strider. Can you explain why his wound is already closing? It's been 10 days, right? So, the, the, the actual cut on his shoulder is, is closed now, right? Um, and it wasn't a big wound to start with, by the way. That's a, that seems to support our idea of the blade of the knife in the hand of the Nazgul being a more stiletto-like narrow blade, right? In that it, it the stab wound is only a, a small wound uh, on Frodo's shoulder. Um, and Strider's answer, Frodo... So, so anyway, but I, I was back... Sorry, Dime, back to your question about that phrase, right? Looking appealingly at Strider. First is the fact that he... Um, uh, he seems to be trusting Strider here. You know, Sam seems to have really turned a corner to some extent, or maybe he's pushing at him a little bit more. Um, But again, he's not looking demandingly. He's not looking suspiciously. He's not looking angrily at Strider. He's looking appealingly at him, right? Um, uh, He's, so that seems to be a, that seems to be a good sign, right? A, A sort of a positive sign. Um, for uh, for Sam there, uh, and I, so I think that this is this is telling us something about Sam's uh, relationship with him. The fact that he's saying this in a low voice, I, I don't. He seems to want to prevent Merry and Pippin from being more worried. Remember again, Aragorn didn't say to everybody about the deadly wound thing, right? He said that aside to Sam, and it seems that Sam has kept that to himself. And so now, when he wants to bring that up again, he's saying it aside in a low voice uh, uh, to uh, to Strider. Um, and uh, yeah, trifle, I agree. It is interesting that we that we get a temperature description of the wound in the middle of a bunch of sight description. There's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Um, it is both white and cold. Oh, Crownless, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, Crownless saying that he feels more that Sam doesn't want Frodo to hear his worry. Yeah, except I think Frodo's pretty much unconscious at this point. <laughs> at least Frodo has cast himself on the ground and is... is uh, yeah, yeah so I I agree. They, they, they want to keep it from Frodo. Um, yeah. Um, 
I think you guys are right, though. You guys are, uh, several of you are suggesting sort of the significance of not only the coldness, but the whiteness of the mark on his shoulder. That that's... That's nothing new. That's nothing... That's not good. Okay, so... His wound was small, and it is already closed. So I think that... Um, oh, and uh, Arden Crayon, Frodo didn't fall off the pony. He was on foot. Remember, so he was on foot, and he just throws himself down on the ground as soon as they get up to the top onto level ground. Even though it's narrow level ground, he throws himself to the ground up there. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. I, um, if it's a physical stab wound, it would be red, right? So I always... I think I was, uh, my reception of that second sentence, there's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder, um, has always been slanted by the sentence that came before. So Sam says two things, right? One, his wound was small and it is already closed, right? So that's, that's, that's the first thing that he says, right? So these are two things which suggest the wound isn't a big deal, right? Um, it's small and it's already closed. And then he adds, there's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Now, so the first sentence is about how everything outwardly seems to be fine, right? And so I think that I always read that second sentence as supporting, giving more information to support the first sentence, right? The wound doesn't seem like a big deal. I don't understand why it's a big deal. Why is he still sick? The wound seems fine, right? It's how I always took that whole paragraph by Sam, right? But I agree that a cold white mark isn't normal. Ten days after you receive a stab wound, it's not going to be white. A scar might eventually look white, but not in ten days. Um, It's still it's gonna it's still gonna be. Yeah, no, I mean I I've I have a white scar too, but I have a white scar from thirty five years ago, um, not a scar from ten days ago. Uh, If you get a stab wound. if you get a stab wound, um, yeah, it's going to stay red for a while after it's closed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. Now, how much experience does Sam have in treating wounds, right? Does he... Because I, I, so I can imagine two different interpretations of that sense. So first of all, I don't think that white white mark is normal at this stage, right? Um, nor do I think that cold is normal at this stage. Now it's true, Matt, that you know cold could be merely a good sign in the sense of um, no fever, right? It's not infected. It doesn't look. In, it's not hot. Right, he doesn't look infected. Um, yeah, well, I agree. He's likely injured himself with some frequency gardening. A couple of you were pointing out garden wounds he would have had. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, but probably pretty. Much. I mean, would he have actually stabbed himself, like stabbed with a blade? I mean, it's not impossible, of course. Stuff like that happens, but I don't think that stuff like that is in, is inevitable. 
for a gardener. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I do. I do take it that the wounds already closed, which seems like. Let's assume for a second that Sam is speaking largely in ignorance, right? So he doesn't know all that much about the progress of wound healing, right? If we assume that for a moment, he would say, hey, look, the wound was small, so that's good, right? Um, And it's closed already. That's good. That's got to be good, right? That should be good. There's nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder, right? So it's a small, it's already closed up. It's just a white mark. So he's mostly better. Outwardly, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, th- th- he might think this is a good thing. So if he is saying this in ignorance, there's like some dramatic irony here, right? Where we, the readers, are hearing Sam describe this and saying... Actually, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound normal, Sam. Right? I get that the fact that it's closed and there's only a white mark there might seem good, but that's not how this kind of a wound should proceed. It is proceeding... This is unnatural. Um, The idea that the wound closes quickly, more quickly than usual, um, that the outward healing of the skin... Uh, proceeds unusually fast is actually kind of interesting, right? Kind of uh, devious, really. Uh, if a splinter from the from the uh, from the blade is left in the wound, making it harder to access, right? Would be you know. So having this uh, having the effect of of sealing the wound quickly uh, could well be a part of the attack on Frodo, right? Um, now. Mad, viol- Mad Violinist, I agree with you. I've been skipping over your comments there, but I- I'm not ignoring them. I completely agree with you. The word cold is weird. I don't think that it just means he's not feverish and so that's good, right? Or it's not, like, bright red and obviously infected and hot, which, you know, infected wounds do f- uh, can feel hot to the touch. Um, uh, so I-, I, ag- I agree, you know, in- there might be a sense in which he's saying that that's, that that's a good thing. Um but it still does seem strange. It still does seem that there's something uncanny about this wound if it's actually cold, right? Um, and I don't see any reason to think that when when I don't I don't I don't know that Sam is being metaphorical there. You could read that as metaphor, like it's it looks cold and white, but I think it might be cold to the touch, quite possibly. We know that Frodo has had a sensation of cold from the wound from the very... It felt like uh, like he was stabbed with ice, right? Remember? Um, so it I seems to me quite likely that the wound is actually um, cold to the touch. And Sam would have touched it, right? Sam has been, has been uh, 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 you know, treating his wound, Um so he would have he would have noticed that, um, and yes, M- Mad Violinist, we know that his hand is certainly cold. Um, so we do have lots of reasons about um, the coldness. So Amali, I do tend to agree with you that Sam has misgivings about the wound. 
I don't think that's an, in, an inescapable reading. He could be sort of naive about wound healing and say, looks like the wound is doing fine. Why is he sick? Right? It doesn't look infected. Why is he sick? Right? I don't get it. Like, why is he not getting better? Um, that's where he starts, right? What is the matter with my master? Um, and uh, anyway, I do think that he's so, you know, I've been saying for argument's sake, let's imagine that he doesn't really know that he's just like blithely saying, I think this looks fine. Um, I'm not sure in the end, I believe that. Um, I, uh, it's hard. The, sh- the shape, if I can say it that way um the shape of the sentences what is the matter he asks his wound was small and it is already closed that's good there is nothing to be seen but right he doesn't say there's a cold white mark on his shoulder what's wrong what's wrong with him right he says there is nothing to be seen but a cold white mark on his shoulder. All you can see is a cold white mark, right? It still seems like the emphasis that he is placing is outwardly, it looks good. The wound was small. It's already closed. There's nothing to be seen. Um, But I think the cold white mark, the description of the cold white mark, um, nevertheless, is, uh, is... perhaps, you know, something that he's worried about. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Tony, no, I do think that he's asking Strider to level with him. Strider's already mentioned it, right? Strider's, Strider's already said, I, you know, I, I think they believe your master has received a deadly wound, right? Um, he's looking for more information, right? What is the matter with my master? Um, yeah. Katriana is wondering, Harnuth is, seems to be wondering as well, the closing of the wound, the rapid, unexpectedly rapid closing of the wound, is that necessarily part of the curse or could it be part of the uh, healing uh, that Aragorn has already done? Um, the Athalos has an effect on the wound, but I think the effect of the Athalos is... I don't know. It's possible that it helps you know, his flesh to knit together faster than it would left to itself. But I tend to think that, uh, the primary effect of the Athos is spiritual rather than, um, uh, is spiritual rather than, um, uh, than physical. Um, I don't know that it necessarily stitches wounds together faster. Um, the effect that the Athos has, as it's described, is on the spiritual impact of the wound, right? His side feels less cold, and um, uh, and some life comes back to his arm. That's the effect that Frodo feels upon the administration of Athos, right? Um, yeah. And I do... I, I haven't had a stab wound myself of this kind, Trifle, um, but I'm pretty sure that it's a pretty... I mean, when I've had cuts, even just shallow cuts... Uh, they take many days to close and are still visible for weeks. Um, 
and don't become a white scar for a long time after that. Um, uh, so, I mean, anyone who's had stab wounds like this, uh, more close in nature to Frodo's, uh, can tell me what, what was it like after 10 days, but I'm pretty sure scarred over is not, is not the case. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he'd be still scabbing, right? Uzi, Villari says. Yeah, that, that seems to me quite likely, um. Especially remember, he's not getting stitches, right? Uh so the wound is uh the wound is open. Um uh Yeah. You stabbed yourself with a sword, Matt Violinist, and it was still healing ten days after. Okay. Well if you stabbed yourself with a sword, then 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 you know. Uh uh it's just the Oh, you stabbed yourself with a knitting needle, Valori? <laughs> That's hardcore. <laughs> Full contact knitting there. I get it. I've always been terrified of, of, uh, of, uh, of knitting. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lots of wound experience from people. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm pretty sure it would take more than 10 days really to close up, uh, even if it is just a flesh wound. All right. Um, notice Frodo, or notice uh, Strider's answer. His answer is not really clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt DeForest says we are not going to stab somebody at Magnolia Moot to track healing times. This is not a reenactment we're going to do at our next moot. Yeah, okay, that's that's fine. That's fine, Matt. We don't actually have to stab anybody. Right? This is for posterity, so be honest. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, okay. Um, Let's see. Strider's answer. Right? Strider's answer. Frodo has been touched by the weapons of the enemy, and there is some poison or evil at work that is beyond my skill to drive out. Right? So he doesn't give him any more information. Right? But what he does emphasize is it's not about the wound. Right? Whether you're optimistic about the wound or, or concerned about the wound, Sam, it's not about the wound. There is some evil at work here or poison, either literally poison or metaphorically poison, right? Um, but don't give up hope. That's the main, his, his, he doesn't give any more information. He's been touched by evil and there is still evil in him, right? That's all we need to know. I can't drive it out, the evil, Right but don't give up hope which seems to go back then to Mary's question at the beginning do you think well, they'll be you know they'll be able to cure him in rivendell we shall see he said then and now he says don't give up hope um Katrina is wondering how much i think aragorn actually knows for sure about the wound that he's not telling i do think that he probably suspects more i bet you i bet you remember he read the runes he was looking at the winds and he can't read everything that's on there but Knowing the circumstances, seeing the evil weapon that vanished and stuff, I'm thinking that he, I bet you that Strider has a has a a, a, a pretty clear suspicion of what the effect of this wound is going to be, right? Um, that Frodo is on the fast track to wraithification at this point. Um, I, I I bet you that Strider suspects that, 
but he doesn't tell. He doesn't answer that to Sam, right? Uh, and that's par for the course. We've seen him do that, like withhold information that he's not 100% sure of. If there are things that he suspects strongly, but he doesn't know for sure, he doesn't say, right? That seems to be pretty uh, um, pretty consistent with, uh, uh, with Strider. Um, yeah, and you're right, Lincoln. He doesn't elaborate. He just says, don't give up hope, right? Um, which, remember, is not just generally good advice, um, but also a way in which Sam can potentially help to oppose the evil that is at work, right? Um, don't give up hope, because that's the best way that you can help to treat Frodo at this point, too. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to stop there. And uh, it's field trip time. So... I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter, as I generally do at this point. Hey, we did pretty well. I got to my second to last slide. That's exciting. Um, All right. So we are going to do our field trip. Okay, hang on a second. Actually, I just had a thought, which is I think that my audio... Hang on, I've got to change my audio to make sure people can... Okay, we're good. All right. Good evening, Valoria. Are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Good All evening, right. everybody. Cool. I say bye to the Twitter folks. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining bye, us. Bye, Twitter folks. Okay. All right. All right. We're heading into Troll Shaws again. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to stretch here. That's good. Yep. So we're going to go to the Troll Shaws again. Let's see. Probably still riding to Oscar Ruth is probably our best route here yeah i think so especially since we just sort of scratch scratched the surface of uh, yeah we just barely got into the troll shots last time yeah and i was thinking about it we so we started off to the north which is of course where they went uh Mm -hmm. in the book and i want to do that but the more i uh have been the more i've been thinking about it the more i think i want to i want to look south of the road I think first tonight, um, because, uh, there's kind of less of it there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I want to, I want to kind of finish that up because we'll we'll be exploring up to the North for quite a bit. Um, yeah. That's cool. Besides which what's South of the road is like more suspenseful from an archeological standpoint, because, North of the road has been consistently um, uh, uh, Rudar from, mm-hmm. you know, all the way through the Lone Lands, right? Oh, let me guess you saw something. <laughs> the question is, you know, what about south of the road? Um, is that same pattern going to hold true in the Trollshaws that seem to hold true in the Lone Lands? Or are we going to uh are are we going to see a shift so oh okay that is sort of the archaeological suspense of the troll shaws and south of the road so all right so oscarith and yeah no that actually happened with the knitting it was a wooden one too it wasn't a metal one it was a wooden a, knitting was... you stabbed yourself with a wooden knitting needle uh i'm a klutz 
I also carry my knitting with me to probably more places than I should. I forget it's in there and then things happen. Uh huh. So like, was it so, in the bag and you stabbed yourself through the bag? Yeah, it was in the bag. I fell against uh, the bag or the bag got twisted somehow. Uh, and, and I stabbed myself in the leg with a wooden knitting needle. Okay. That could, I can, and, uh, I can see no, that. it did not heal in 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but if you want like a, a live tweet of it and stuff like that, it's not a question of if with me. It's probably when. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so everybody is listening. Like... We need a fresh wound. So, like, nobody stabbed themselves on purpose or anything. No self-harming on our watch, Yes, please. no self-harming on our watch. But if anyone should happen to receive an accidental injury, let's track this, you know, for science. Yes. No pictures necessary, please. Just oh, descriptions. Right. As, as Karita mentions, don't, don't stab yourself or anyone else. Yes, thank you, Karita, for adding that. Um, yes, yes. Very important. <laughs> Man, no, a friend of mine just sliced his thumb, and I he posted a picture of him taking his stitches out, and I'm sitting there going, why do people do this? Yeah. So, picture's quite unnecessary. Yes, that's right. No, yeah, we really don't need um, picture. Well. Three-sentence description. Yeah. Yeah. With measurements. With measurements. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. unseen. Um, JJ says pictures only if it's a small cold white mark uh, <laughs> yes if that and it happens, can't be hot to, uh, hot to the touch yeah, yeah it has to be cold if that happens after 10 days I will be especially interested to see pictures yeah. so what do you think was their cold depressing breakfast by the way I brought up Weetabix because I was reading it with my 11-year-old, and she remembers when I first got my braces on, and they put spacers in my teeth, and I couldn't eat anything crunchy. Yes. So yes. all of my breakfast cereal had to be Weetabix that was soaked in milk for like an extra minute. Oh, that's so depressing. The, the kids kept hovering around me, too, going, what's it taste like? What's it taste like? <laughs> I was just like, it tastes like sadness, okay? <laughs> sadness, yes. Exactly. Um, uh, well... What do I think they were eating? I mean, probably, I mean, the things that they, um, the things that they had to eat have to have been things like cheese, dried meat, dried fruits, uh, um, fall, maybe nuts, tubers, maybe nuts. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what I think they must have had with them. As supplies yeah, that yeah. they brought from Brie. So, as far as, yeah, as far as trail food goes, I think pemmican is the saddest thing I've ever... <laughs> it's like eating a, a waxy beef candle. Yeah. With nuts in it. <laughs> JJ, there's no a clear indication... Uh, there's no indication that they have cram. Um, no, uh, you know, cram specifically, oh. like that which is called cram, uh, is uh, made by the Dale people. By the yeah, the people of Dale. Um, yeah, but when cram is described, he doesn't describe it as like a unique invention of the men of Dale. You know, I mean, he compares mm-hmm. it to you know, it's biscuitish, like so. It's kind of like crackers, um, probably hardtack. Yeah, something like that. Essentially, I, that seems likely that uh, 
you know, people in Bree and the Shire would have something of the sort. Um, exactly, uh, uh, Tora Marthen. That's how that description sounds to me. The the cram description, uh, as he says, it's just the Dalish version, the, the Dalish variety of hardtack. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's always how I've taken that passage. Um, yes, short for cram it in your noise hole and stop complaining. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah. Okay, oops, we're still... <laughs> I'm like, oh, let's look at the map, except I'm still just on the Lowland side of the <laughs> map. No, Gotta wait till the words pop okay. up. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so where I want to go, so as you can see here, we've got this one little uh, dip in the mountains south of the roads here. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I, I want to... So I want to explore down there just for like completionist purposes and to see if there's anything down there. And then we'll head back up towards the North where obviously there's a great deal more, uh, to explore. So let's, uh, Oh, we're still riding. Okay. We're still riding. We're still riding. Let's go. Let's head off here. Uh, and I'll turn, there's more places that I could, uh, the only thing that's South of us right now is just a little bit of wilderness and valleys and things. Um, mm-hmm. I think they did a wonderful job of it, 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 here as in the Lonelands. I think in both places, the game does a really good job of capturing the general, like overall texture of um, mm-hmm. uh, of the uh, um, the landscape that's described. Right, we've got these all these uh, like notice how even here, right, we have this like steep cliff with pine woods up at the top, right. Uh-huh. Notice, like, the pine trees piled up. They're not hanging over the edge here. Of course, we're not in the same part of the Lonelands, or the, of uh, the Trollshaws that they were in uh, during that description in the book. Um, but again, we have all these all these pine woods, um, and uh, I don't know, I think this hill looks kind of sullen. You know, yeah, I think so. Just I like the, the ground. Is that reddish color you get around pine forests where all the red leaves fall into the ground? Yes. Yes, this is very much what the Shenandoah Valley looks like right now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, see, I was looking through back here by the den of the boars. Right, here's, look at this, we got the, the again, the, the pine woods coming down the hill, right? Uh, looking from down here, like the pine woods, all the, you know, the pine trees all stacked up on top of each other here. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, as I say, I think they do a really good job of capturing the general feel of the countryside, just as they did in the Lonelands, though it's quite different. Um, but, sorry, here we're just surrounded by pigs, which is uh, <laughs> not really... See, this is what real bacon's made out of. That's right. Speaking of bacon, <laughs> I can see I really touched a nerve with the whole turkey-bacon <laughs> thing. Yeah, you know, that was a pretty polarizing subject there. It was. Both chat rooms were really, like... Uh, 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 yeah, uh, really agitated with that discussion. If our if our chat's going to be agitated by anything, I think a sub the subject of bacon is probably my favorite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially today. Let's see. We have to go down. We're let's see. I'm still too far. Yeah, we got to go down over the next hill. I think. Right. Yeah. I think so. To go up to the camp, because there is that one camp up here. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, it's over yeah, here. Which is here, right. Yeah, we just came around the corner there. It's a spiral. There we go. Yes. Oh, looks like I've already been here. Did not know that. What do you need? Okay. Oh, somebody just leveled up over there? Wow. Yeah. 
they they discovered the place. That means they completed something or started something. Right. Okay, so there's not much to see here. No evidence of earlier construction, so we have no ruins anywhere around here. It's just a random camp. Uh, yeah, just here. pitch tents. With elves and a dwarf and another elf, right? So these are just elves and dwarves. That's no rangers here, right? So we have, no. a, we have a ranger-free campfire here. Ooh, hang on, but we do have something. Notice the dwarf is wearing the same uniform as the elf. That is interesting, but it's the uniform. I don't think I, I noticed that in. before. So here's a guy who is not going to be as creeped out by me staring at his chest, and he's standing up so I can get closer to it. And it's horses! <laughs> see, I couldn't see that before. It's horses. Oh. Horse heads. Is that like a reference to, like, Elrohan, maybe? Maybe. Be part of his fighting force? Eladan and Elrohan's fighting force? Yeah. Or it could be a reference to the white horse motif of the Ford, or... Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Elrohir's Elrohir's name is associated with knights and horses. Yeah, it means basically what, like elf horse, was it? Yeah, so or elf or little horse. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly, like elf horseman kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just what Erukeb was saying. Uh, Elro here means something like elf rider or star rider. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's what I would have to guess. There's no differences, are there? Is this dude over here um, wearing the same shirt? No, he's not. He's just wearing... No, no, he's dress. wearing a little blue robe here with a oh, sort of upside-down lotus pin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the stable master is unaffiliated. Not one of these soldier types in armor, right? As the he doesn't even get a name. Yeah, this dude's. What is he just? Oh, he's got Barakim. This guy has it, but the other dude. Yeah, the stable master doesn't have a name. Hather Iron Fist. Are you giving him a name? No, that's his name. Or Hather. Oh, that's the. Is is that the same rules? The first Val does the walking, and the second does the talking. Hyther? Hyther, 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 yeah. Hyther, yeah. Um, Hi there, Hyther. <laughs> Hi there. Yes, exactly. Um, I've heard it all, laddie. Uh. Is this such a strange design, though? Or strange in uh-huh. that it isn't strange? I mean, so the quartered shield with the two horse yeah. heads each looking outward, and then the blank other quarters. Hmm... What I mean by saying strange that it is not more strange is that it looks a lot like sort of traditional human heraldry. Not yeah, exactly it does. the same, but it's that idea of a quartered shield with a Yeah. It's boring. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit. But I like but- the theory that these are it makes me wonder. Do would we have reason to think that Eladon and Elro here would have separate liveries? We'll have to see. Could be, yeah. Or the other thing is maybe the blanks are filled in by different things depending on what rank they are. Maybe. Okay. So now we can we have more reason to stare at the chest of every elf that we come across in order to 
get to the bottom of this mystery. All right. Not at all creepy. So I'm going to head back out to the road and then go cuz it's a little easier than going cross country here. We're going to Everyone briefly, got the stable master, right? Yeah, we got the stable master there. We're going to briefly go back to the road and turn to the south where it's all did I miss it already? I always miss this. Was it back uh, here? Me too. What, the Elfstone, right? Or was it at... No, that was where the camp was. Okay, no, so we're still not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, that's right. Okay. So now we've got to go well, around this hill, because I want to go to the other place. Oh. That path that's harder to find. I think it's over this ridge, maybe? We talking about Eladan and Elverhere's camp? No. I'm going right. Oh. I'm going south. So. And I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just yeah. going to have to rely on you then. <laughs> okay. I think it's here. I think it's here. This next one. Uh, no. Not this one yet. Next one? <laughs> there should be bats and things. No. Creepy oh. bats. Where do they go? Not quite there yet. Somewhere in here. Okay, maybe I should have gone overland after all. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, ho, here it is. Okay, no, there's ominous right. deer instead of creepy bats, but ominous yes. Deer. There's the bats. Okay, I found them. All right, here it is. Okay. Here yes. it is. This is what I was looking for. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This path south, which well, gets to looking murkwoody very quickly. Notice the trees are sort of dead here. Now it's autumn. These could be just have lost their leaves early, but they don't look healthy. Yeah, some of these look like they got rust or something. Yeah. Okay, we're getting some people attacked, so... Oh, yeah, it's that's going to get much worse before it gets better. Uh, okay, if we have low so. levels, we definitely need to go ahead and kill stuff. Well, okay, hang on. Let me go first for a second so I can see the mobs first, and then <laughs> sure. you come up and follow me. And I'll be things. back here. Okay, so helping. we've got trolls. All right, All right we've got trolls. Yep. Uh, Kur Olog scourges here. Definitely stone trolls, right? And then we'll have you guys can kill the trolls, and then we've got these dudes, Kor Kur, who are hillmen, right? Oh, there he goes, attacking folks. Let me look at this guy before he runs away. There he goes. He's dying. Hang on. Stop, everybody. Wait and hold back. Let me look at the mobs for a second. Stay behind me. Stay behind me. I want to see the mobs. There he is. Quick. Look at him before he either dies or attacks somebody. Okay. He is pretty fancy, but I think, yes, he's he's he is a hillman. So he is like the Cleants that we saw in uh, Garth of Garwin. Um, hillmen who have come south here quite a bit south, right? He's south of the road. Which is significant. So we already have reason to think... Okay, it's alright. You guys can kill him now. Um, we already have reason to think that... we're. And here's the Rudauer symbols all over the walls. Right? So... Uh -huh. Even before we saw the walls, the fact that we had both not only trolls, but also hillmen sort of suggests the worst. Right? But this... Yeah. Clearly a Rudauer and stronghold. What's down this way? Hang on. I'll dismount. I don't Everybody know. else is dismounted, so... I'll dismount here. Um, uh, definitely a troll. Let's okay, take a look. So, 
Notice oh. that the these Rudaran symbols are nouveau Rudaran symbols, right? We've got the the blood water business below the trees, right? Uh-huh. The sort of base of the crown thing there. Yeah. Where does this go? How far down does this go? I don't even remember this. I don't remember this at all. I think I just avoided it because once I was done, I just wanted to get away Boy, from that. We've got two routes to go. Hang on, let's go. What, what on earth is this way? Is this back where we came from? No. Oh, this might go to the Stone Glade. No. No? We're on the wrong side of the road for that, surely. Oh, yes, yes, we are. Sorry. Is this just come out? This just comes out to the road, doesn't it? We're going back up towards I the road. I think so. I'm a bit okay, turned so this around. Is like an alternate route down into here, I guess? Yeah, full, I guess so. Full of trolls? So I could have taken one of the earlier turnings and have gotten here in the end anyway? I suppose. I suppose. Okay. Uh, I don't have any range. <laughs> yeah, so I guess this is just an alternate route. Yeah. There's not like a like an archaeological pile of gold at the end of this particular rainbow, is there? I don't oh, I wish. Is. See, I'm continually, like, I, I'm just, I'm always drawn on by these things. I... Well, yeah, we're having an is adventure. Anything right around the corner. No, we're getting back towards the road, closer and closer. I don't think we're going to see any architecture. Yeah. Here. Okay. All right. Let's go back. Let's go back. All right. Let's go back. Yeah, we got more things to examine. Yeah, this one got... might be hard for lowlies too, because this one's like a. This yeah. be a fellowship area. And we've left Minas Agor. Yeah, this is this is this is a. Though it's not as bad as the North Trollshaws are. For. Low right. levels. You going back to the ruins then? Going back to Sorry. going back to the ruins. Yeah, turn around and come back. Because okay. right. I want to. I just wanted to check and make sure there weren't any ruins up this direction, but I don't think there are. Okay, right there's that arch Venus that we came through. Am I going the right way? Yep. Gosh, I hope I'm going come, the right way. Come back south. Oh, okay. Oops, not going the right way. Not going there. Retreat, retreat, retreat. My bad, my bad, my bad. Oh, were you going up towards the see? road? Yeah, I went up on the high road, okay. not the low road. I see. See, this is this is the sort of directions from a person who gets stabbed by a knitting needle. So, got it right. Sorry, yeah. sending my links after that troll. Um, All right. All right. What do we got here? All right. Okay. Now I just want to see what's down the other road. Good job, links. Um. And. Not much so far. Boy, it just keeps going, though. Uh-huh. More Hillman. Oh, this is going deeper and deeper into the... I feel like there should be some reward at the bottom of this. Down, down, down to the bottom of this. Yeah, okay. Down into the deepest center of the troll haunted we keep going down both yep. towards the bottom corner of the map and all the way down boy are there a lot of trolls down here yep and here's see look at me you know what i'm looking around for I'm What's looking that? around for any architecture of any kind, right? But I'm not finding any. Why not? Because well, there isn't any. Aragorn says trolls don't build. Yep. Trolls do not build. 
No, we'll see them occupy a lot of these ruins, but they don't make anything for themselves. Yeah, and certainly we are seeing the truth of that here. There is just a whole lot of nothing. This is just rocks and trolls. Uh -huh. Nothing and more but trolls. rocks and trolls. Oh, my lynx is doing a great job, though. Okay, all right. Yeah, I was impressed. Nothing down here. Okay, so I was kind of interested to see if there was anything, like, yeah, like as you said, any ruins that the trolls were sort of taking over or anything. The answer is no. Nothing of yeah. the kind at all. Just empty valley of rocks full of trolls. <laughs> okay. Now it is nighttime, but these trolls are still out during the day, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, that's the weird part. Hey, look at that big tall tower over there. What, the, the direction I'm running? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's back towards the ruins that we passed by to check uh -huh. to see if there were any other ruins. Okay. We should be heading back here soon. We should come to the... Yeah. The archway. Yes, to that archway that we came through. Which I was hoping was a gateway to further archaeological delights, but in fact seems to have turned out to be the Just a door. end of them rather than the beginning of them. But that's okay. Okay, so we're back to the arch. So we've concluded oh, that there's guys? nothing there. Yeah. Okay. Well, All right, so up there, here we are going to have some... Uh, red hooded uh wraithy thingies and yes um, they yes, are extremely over level so there is a high probability of one of us going home in a body bag okay let's see all right what do we have in here we have pillars in the middle we have walls we have a whoops i'm pointing the wrong direction we have an red courtyard. We rates. have leg, red cloak, wow. cargool. Wait, I want to see their cloaks. Stars, crowns. Do they respond? Oh, apparently, I was. Um, yeah, they were aggroing on the lower level people. That's okay. why they were floating back here. They'll they'll be back. Don't worry. They'll be back. Okay. I want to take a closer look at their cloaks when they come back. Okay. Um, do not engage. Repeat, do not engage. Yes, courtyards are s just stars? I don't see much of the large Rudaran crown, which is interesting. We've yeah, only over the gateway here. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got them on the walls, clearly. Uh-huh. Um, and on these yeah. walls, too. All the walls are Yep, Rudaran. scepter, crown. see some remnants of the, the tree pattern on the ground covered in leaf mold. Yes. The oh, tree pad? What is, what are these black cloaks? Is that white cloaks? I just got a flash of yuckiness. With the things lying on the ground? Yeah. Oh, um, there's a cargo right up there. Where? Who? Right there. Back where we came from. Oh, killing this guy. Oh, okay. There's two of them here. Uh, let's see. He's got what... Oh, Looks now like I, my own lynx is killing him. Yeah, kings? The, the crowns. He's it got crowns. It's a little fleur de lis on the bottom there, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's fleur de lis. They look like gold crowns yeah, going up the side. Mostly. Okay, so they're just marked for the iron crown of Angmar, right? Yeah. Okay. This, of course, this is a classic Hillman tent, right? Yeah, with orange segment on the top. And yeah. Nothing in nothing here. Nothing going on. No weapons, yeah. no mats. No weapon racks, exactly. That's what we'd expect to see. Yeah. And the tower, here's that tower thing that we were looking at. What is the story uh-huh. of this tower? That is weird. Can we even get to it? Yeah. Oh, here we go, here we go, up here. We can, yeah, we can uh, walk all the way up on it. Whoa, uh, I don't think enough. I can get on it. No, no. Oh, we're repelled off there. Improbably. No climbing on the history. Yeah. Yeah, tourists keep off this tower, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Again, obviously, Rudaran. These black cloaks are all over the floor on here. There's like one and two. No, but we are supposed to be tracking down what happened to the last whites after the river. So Yes. It would make sense that their cloaks are like what's left. Right, black cloaks everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. Are these the like all of the black cloaks? Weird. Ooh, the cargo is back. I can tell. I just got dead. Whoa! That is way over level for me. See, the ones at the bottom don't look like crowns. I I can't really tell. (laughs) Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, it must look chicken feet kind of looking thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a little different. Okay, so Rudar had... This is clearly not a city. This is, you know, just like a... There's a stopgap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got walls. It's not even really a f- proper castle, right? It's not like a fortress. It's... Yeah. We've got this big courtyard area, right, with flagstones all around, and we've got a tower over there, and we've got a little tower up here, and we've got, uh, you know, a big wall and... Um, entryway over here. You can tell the builders were impeded by the landscape. Well, yeah, like they just kind of used the landscape, right? Filled it in with defensive fortifications so that this whole little valley in here was, uh, became a kind of stronghold. But this is obviously not like a place where they live. So this is an outpost of some kind, right? Yeah. Um, meant to secure the area down here south of the road. But they haven't, so they haven't fully expanded down south of the road. But we have come to the end, apparently, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, of Arthedine's reach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least, if they have any reach here, we haven't seen it yet, um, because they've been. Uh, I think my Winx has stopped to kill things on the way. Yes, it has. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, because they... So, yeah. So, Arthurine not not maintaining its, uh, its connection down here south of the road as we saw. So, this land... This is just Root Hour, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. And it matches the map. Right? It does. Um, where Root Hour is labeled more clearly in the troll shaws here. 
Yeah, and given Brudar's control over certain areas, it would have been hard for another army to sandwich themselves into this little box canyon. Right, right. But we certainly still haven't seen anything yet, either north or south of the road where we've been, that suggests anything like, um, you know, a lo- like a, a city of the of you know the Rudaran folks. No, not like not to the extent we've seen in the Lone Lands. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, all right, we're back to the road. The road is our only path to the fort, um, which we're not, of course, not quite hitting yet. All right, so we still have a lot of uh, terrain to cover north of the road. I want to see if we can uh, find anything like the route that they took. Um, I don't know if it exists, but we're, we'll see what we can find. Um, mm-hmm. So I do want to head up north, uh, continue north, as we began last time. I wanted to explore down here. Interesting to confirm that we do get Rudauran ruins down here. And then see what we find up in the north, both both in terms of the overall geography, if we can find if they have tried to match the description of those, uh, uh, especially of that ridge that they had to climb over. Uh, I'll be interested to see if we can fi- if they have tried to recreate something like that in the game. They they often can't recreate specific geographical features like that, but be interested yeah. to see if they tried. And then, yeah. um, and then of course we'll see. If there are other ruins, uh, those uh, ruins that they saw, right, and described seeing off in the distance uh, and see what we can see uh, when we actually get there, uh, what we can put together archaeologically uh, for the history of this region uh, based on what we continue to see up in the north there. So I think we're going to have to we're going to stop there. It's getting late. I ran late again tonight, but so I'm going to try to let everybody go here. Um, but I yep. will be back next week. Uh, I'll be back next week. I'll be gone the week after that. So I'm traveling with my family the week, like the Thanksgiving week, essentially. Yeah, so sounds we, good. Yeah. So we won't have class then, but we will have class next week. And again, don't forget, Charlotte, North Carolina, Magnolia Moot coming up this weekend. Yeah. So spread the news. <laughs> and uh, we, we're, um, I'm excited for our next moot. This is the uh, this is the end of this intense moot season. It's our final moot in the fall. Uh, this is my third moot in six weeks here. So um, five weeks, really. Um, yeah, you're a machine, man. <laughs> <laughs> we're... we're we're, it's, uh, uh, it's been, it's been awesome fun. Looking forward to getting down to Charlotte and meeting everybody. Um, so thanks everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. See you guys next week. And don't forget to try out the legendary server tomorrow. Yes. Legendary server is opening. That'll be cool. Yeah. All right. Bye everyone. Good night. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.